How about that cigar? How about that cigar? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 108 of How About That Cigar Live. We are live on Facebook, live on YouTube right now. Thank you so much for joining us on the program. If you're listening after the fact mm-hmm. on the audio podcast, thank you as always for everybody joining us live in the Drew Estate Cigar Studios. And let's remind everybody about the return of the Barn Smoker program in 2021. They will host three barn smokers beginning in the Connecticut Barn Smoker on August 14th and 15th in the beautiful Connecticut River Valley. The Kentucky Barn Smoker will follow in Hopkinsville, Kentucky on October 9th. Finally, the Florida Barn Smoker will take place November 13th and 14th in Claremont, Florida. As always, Barn Smoker attendees will enjoy an immersive deep dive into a variety of unique sensory activations that will focus on Drew Estate brands, including Undercrown, Herrera Esteli, Pappy Van Winkle, Hoya de Nicaragua, Florida Sun Grown, Tobacco Especial, and Acid, while chilling with Drew Estate ambassadors, including company founder and president Jonathan Drew, master blender Willie Herrera, and La Grande Fabrica Drew Estate factory spokesman Pedro Gomez. Multiple ticket options are available for each event. For more info, please visit barnsmoker.com. So episode 108... 108. It's been, we just had an episode a couple days ago. We had yeah. another weekend episode with uh, Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah Mirafell. Absolutely great conversation with him. Uh, got some more tears, which Dude. we don't go for tears, but you know, sometimes conversations get emotional. What I can feel you like do? we're the, the James Lipton the ja- of, <laughs> of, or the Barbara Walters. The- <laughs> if you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? Yeah. So uh, our guests should uh, just get ready. Um, break out the Kleenex box. So it was so beautiful. Weather was oh starting gosh. to improve around here. And today the high was, I think it got up to 35 degrees and it snowed. Dude. So yeah. yesterday uh, I went fishing with a couple guys on the Mississippi river, right on the border of Minnesota and Wisconsin. So South of the cities. And it was beautiful until about six, 30 yeah and it went from 65 degrees down to 40 within minutes yeah this front came in and the up here even the wind kicked up so we're sitting in the living room and right behind the house is this deck that spans half maybe halfway across the back of the house so about 28 feet and all of a sudden this wind kicks up and literally blows all the furniture and all the furniture, except for the table, which is heavy, all the chairs and and little sofa out there start literally sliding across the deck just from the wind. Uh, that was fun. Yeah. So, yeah, Minnesota, it, it'll be 70 one day mm-hmm. and 30 the next. I saw the greatest meme about it, too. And there's this guy with a fishing pole. And on the end of the pole, it says spring. And he's like jerking it up because <clears throat> you don't. I hate you, spring in Minnesota. <laughs> well, it's false spring. It is. McTavish put something on Facebook this year, maybe last year too, where, you know, the the seasons are, you know, winter <laughs> yes. and then false spring and then second winter and then yeah. second false spring or Eleven, whatever it is. Elevensies. Yeah, yeah. So it's you can never trust the weather around here. Uh, again, we'll just we'll touch on it briefly. The twins got absolutely destroyed by the, by the angels on Friday. They had some time off. We're starting again tomorrow against the A's fun to watch 
El Tortuga. Yeah, Tortuga up there pitching a 46-mile-an-hour fastball. And right down the middle for a strike, the it guy was. just stared at it like, uh, what just are, happened? Are you, and are you for real? It was yeah. beautiful. This perfect rainbow right yeah. in the middle of the strike zone. It was awesome. I loved it. And he's, he's, got, he's got this grin on his face yes. the whole time. 46 miles an hour. Was, oh, I loved it. Uh, and the Wilds are firmly holding on to third place Yeah, in, in the uh, Western Division. Um, they're playing tonight against the Coyotes. We'll see what happens. Um, who knows? You know the Coyotes are firmly holding on to fourth place. We'll see. We'll see. We'll what... see if we can make a, a switch there. Yeah. So, uh, guys, let's move into our special main segment of the evening. As always, uh, our special guests on the show are brought to us by Corona Cigar Company and CoronaCigar.com, the internet's largest and easiest to use virtual cigar store. Corona Cigar Company offers the finest handmade cigars, humidors, and cigar accessories at the absolute lowest possible price. You'll also find unique and limited cigars containing Florida sun-grown tobacco. As a proud American, president and founder of Corona Cigar Company, Jeff Borshowitz believed it was possible to bring cigar tobacco farming back to Florida. At Corona Cigar Company and CoronaCigar.com, you'll find the best selection anywhere in the world of cigars containing this special Florida sun-grown tobacco. If you live in Florida or are just visiting, be sure to visit any of the great Corona Cigar locations in downtown Orlando, Sand Lake, Lake Mary, and also the Davidoff of Geneva Lounge in Tampa. For more info on all of that, please visit coronacigar.com and floridasungrown.com. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, if you would please welcome to episode number 108 of How About That Cigar Live from Roma Craft Tobacco. Mike Rosales and Skip Martin, welcome to the show. Oh, okay. we we need better lighting and sound and and, and visual. <laughs> well, here in the studio, we need better subjects. Just you okay. know, the camera. You guys are great. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, Mike's got great lighting. Yeah, Mike. Mike is all set. And Skip, we've worked with way worse. Yeah. Yeah, you look good. Yeah, and you guys are you guys are back in Austin, so so we're not dealing with Nicaraguan internet. We're not dealing with you know the the joys that can come from the internet connections over there. So it's all good, guys. Thanks for so much, Skip. This is your third appearance uh, on How About That Cigar Live, Mike. Uh, welcome to the show. Your first time ever on How About That Cigar Live. Um, we understand that you guys just had a an epic trip from Nicaragua back to the states. Uh, so uh, we know you're a little tired from the trip, but thanks so much for being on. Yeah, no worries. I think that, um, I don't know, it's great to be traveling kind of again, right? I think that uh, if you're going to travel and you're going to go down there, uh, make sure that you have a lot of patience and uh, some woosah, kind of rub your ears a little bit because it's, it's definitely, it's, it's not just like, hey, you show up at the airport and do your thing. It's, it's a process. Yeah, that's that's mm -hmm. one of the things I was going to ask you guys about because for anybody who's who's been fortunate enough to travel down to Nicaragua for a factory tour or for uh, Puro Sabor and things like that, um, it's you know it's got to be a lot different now than than it was just 14 months ago. So how, what are the what is it like as far as the hoops that you guys have to jump through? Not not just with the airport. But with, uh, you know, things in town or, you know, what are you guys doing at the factory to, um, you know, sort of stick with whatever local regulations might be? Uh, so I went down in January. <clears throat> so my uh, normal 
my normal 90 day cycle, I, you know, I don't have residency. So I, I only stay down for like 90 days at a time, kind of like my submarine days. So, so I'll go down. Uh, I went down at the end of January. We all, we actually all had COVID at the beginning of January, the end of last year. And then, uh, kind of once I got over that, I went down and then, um, uh, after, uh, the 90 days, Mike and, and Sean kind of came down at the tail end of that. So, so that we spent a week and then we all came back together. Um, what's really changed, you know, Nicaragua, the, the challenge is that you have to have a very, uh, specific time sequence test in order to enter the country. So really the only airlines that are flying down there now are, uh, Avianca and Copa. So you have to get that test. You have to get it to the airline within a, 36 hours and then it has to be you have to complete your trip before 72 hours so that kind of really ties you to a very specific uh time and then um <clears throat> you know getting the test here is not so hard it's just the timing issue that's hard and then yeah. uh while i was down there the u.s instituted a new rule that but in order to come back from nicaragua you had to actually have a test to enter the united states um, that test, they don't really require that you send it to them before the flight. Uh, but the challenge is there's only one place in, the, in Nicaragua where you can actually get the test. The PCR so test. To, yeah. So you have to go to, you have to go to Managua, you know, one day, uh, schedule the test, go to get the test the next day, wait for your results, uh, you know, go, go on one flight to El Salvador and then take another flight to uh, the U.S. So it takes like three or four days to get from Esteli back to Austin. Wow. Um, in, in terms of the factory, um, you know, we don't really, you know, obviously, uh, you know, during the, the heat of it last year, there were, there, you know, we took some time off and we had some, um, so, you know, a lot of precautions, but other than wearing masks and hand washing and things, uh, in our factory, there's really no, there's no government instituted rules per se. Mensa comes the, the, basically the health department, comes uh at least once or twice a week um they you know they take everyone's of course they charge us <laughs> they take everyone's temperature and their heart rate and and you know ask them questions about it, anybody in their family being sick they do that at least once a week and then um anyone that displays any kind of symptoms you know kind of automatically gets three days off uh and then if it gets worse then they take they get two weeks off so okay um but yeah, I mean, we've only had one person out of the 70 people that work with us that, that went through that in the last 12 months. Mm -hmm. So that's, or actually the last, uh, 16 months. Yeah. So, so it hasn't affected us much. I mean, if you go to the bigger factories, a lot of them, you'll see like the plexiglass dividers. If you see, you know, they have like the, the thing where you clean your shoes when you enter, they, mm -hmm. uh, at Noxa where Esteban's brother works, they actually have like a, a silkwood shower that you have to go through it though it's it's pretty elaborate yeah so and go ahead uh so skip we've had you on a few times i think a lot of our viewers and listeners are familiar with uh who you are mike this is your first time on the show could you let us know who you are what your uh position is within the company and how medicated you have to stay to work with skip <laughs> Again, it's a lot of Wusaw and, and, and breathing techniques. No, you know, so my name is Michael Rosales. Uh, so it's Ro and Ma. I am uh, 
50% owner, business partner with Skip. We started this, you know, back in 2010. Um, so prior to Roma, I had a cigar brand. It was called Adrian's Costa Rican Cigars, which I was making in Costa Rica uh, at a, out of a factory in Pudiscal. Um And I started that project uh, 2006. And then um, during that time, I started bringing up uh, tobacco. And, and we talked a little bit about Raul, which is Esteban's brother, and started bringing up some cigar rollers and we start putting them into um, cigar stores and started kind of this program where they could have a roller come in and we could pick out blends and make cigars based on kind of the feedback from the shop. So I would import up tobacco and then, you know, roll and then several other rollers would make cigars exclusively for um, the shop and then kind of started working on building up kind of, um, you know, refill bundle kind of programs. And um, kind of did that between 2000, really kind of started in 2004, but really kind of got it locked in around 2006. And then um, in 20, 2009, or late 2009, 2010, I uh, came across Skip. And then we kind of started really kind of working on making a cigar, which kind of then turned into making kind of Cro-Magnon, which turned into Romacraft. And so um, that's kind of me kind of summed up as to, you know, my background and, and kind of how uh, I kind of got into the industry. I think the, um, what I do is, so here in, in kind of the, you know, uh, I work with uh, the sales guys, which is now just John. We used to have John and Danny and, and Danny's now kind of just gone off to do his own thing. But John and I basically take care and manage all of the accounts across the United States. So, um, you know, brand development, business development, um, tactical kind of sales strategies that we kind of implement, you know, and customer service and, and, and really just trying to make sure that everything kind of here in this office kind of runs well, um, you know, basically while, while Skip is, you know, kind of out of the country. So Skip and I will partner up. So um, Skip will use kind of like what the, you know, feedback from what I give him as far as the sales or vice versa as far as like what's going to be kind of in production based on what the tobacco can, you know, uh, what they're going to put into the production plan. And then kind of we will roll out kind of how we're going to strategically allocate out, you know, all the product that's going to be kind of shipped in and kind of, you know, make sure that the customers are aware of what's going on and, and when and when to expect it and those types of things. So that's what we do here. Yeah. So I've, uh, I opened up a box of Neanderthal HS, uh, for the show tonight and Garrett and I are smoking those right now. I've got a little bit of uh, Four Roses single barrel also yeah. to go along with that. So Mike, what uh, what are you smoking and drinking along with us this evening on the show? Uh, I'm actually smoking an EC Virtue um, right now. Uh, the I, I smoke a lot of the Connecticut and um, I'm actually not drinking anything because I'm afraid I would fall asleep, but I'm actually, uh, I think it's a uh, Topo Chico. So oh, yeah. That uh, yeah. yeah, that works great. That works great. Uh, Skip, what are you uh, what are you smoking and drinking with us? Uh, I'm smoking a Padron 1926 number six, I think. Ooh, very nice. That we that we bought at the airport on the way out. We we had like two huge Ziplocs of uh, cigars and um, went through them. <laughs> yeah, a lot, of t- a lot of time by the pool. The the cigars went fast, so at the airport we picked up uh, another box and. It was a 10 count box. So I figured I was going to try to smoke it all in a couple of days. Yeah. So 
with everything going on, um, you know, over the last year or so, um, there's been sort of different ways that companies have been engaging with their retailers and engaging with their consumers and stuff like that. So um, what have you guys seen in the, you know, in, in specifically your marketplace, you know, with your retailers and consumers? Um, and what do you think some of the biggest changes really have been over this last year in the ways that you've uh, interacted directly with retailers and customers? Well, I would say that the, the kind of, the, so one of the, because we're not necessarily always on the road. I mean, there was a time when I traveled a lot, but a lot, a lot. And then um, <clears throat> tried to really try to, you know, especially as my kids have kind of gotten a little bit older, spend more time, kind of more balanced as far as doing one or the other. And, um, but a lot of the times the relationships that we have have always been from the consumer up, right? So we've always spent a lot of time trying to engage with the consumers. Um, and, and, and really the retail stores have been a conduit to the, the consumer base that we kind of create. So again, working from the bottom up. And so, but during COVID, what was, what kind of transitioned was, you saw obviously a lot of people started doing Zoom calls, right? So we took it as an opportunity to really focus on staff, focus on, on kind of this educational kind of piece as far as kind of working through uh, the lines and, and what, you know, obviously cause we do everything through phone when the idea of zoom kind of came around, which is kind of ironic because Skype and FaceTime and all this other stuff's been around. Right. But, but retailers finally were like, you know, we could do this. So you send them a link, they jump on, you spend, you know, 30, 45 minutes on a call. You can do customer account review. You can go through product lines. You can do all these other things. You can kind of share it with them. And, and it really, it's really seamless. Right. And so, um, that was one of the things that I think early on when we kind of, when we sent Danny and John and everybody was working from the home, like it was really about, let's okay, let's set up your zoom calls, who you got, do we need to be on, you know, um, how do we kind of manage that? What's funny is there's still some, some accounts though that don't have computers or still use fax machines or, you know, mm. very, very dated in, in the technology that, uh, so you, so you have some challenges, right? Some of these older, you know, shop owners that have been around for a long, long time are resistant to change. Um, so, but for the most part, you know, so where I'm going with that is, is that you see the kind of the guys that are adapting to, you know, kind of what's thrown at them as far as, you know, not having um, this interaction with, with customers and, 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 you know, people within the industry, they're, they're adapting and they're, they're, they're changing along with, with what's being thrown at them. However, there's still a lot of retailers out there that either are resistant to change and or have been, you know, on extended lockdowns. And, and those guys are kind of behind the eight ball because they've, they've gone longer without really kind of embracing or having the ability to kind of get to use some of the technology that's kind of been thrown out there. So, yeah. um, so I, I really think that, um, you know, one of the challenges is going to be getting, Getting pe- and I think people will eventually. They'll come back into the store, right? But it's giving them a reason to come back to the store and, and making them feel safe in that in the same thing, you know. So, um, but I think I think it'll come back around. I just think it'll take a little bit longer than they think. Yeah. Um, one of the sort of out, out in the the world of commerce or retail a lot, you know this this phrase that's been thrown around for generations that is a I wouldn't call it a controversial phrase. I think it's wrong, but there's this phrase, the, the customer's always right, which um, 
really is not, a, you know, in, in my experience, isn't really a true statement. So when it comes to, and Mike, you and I um, uh, hung out at Tobacco Grove here in the Minneapolis area uh, about yeah. a year and a half ago or so when you were in town. And, um, you know, that that's a, that's one of the nicest shops in the area as far as sure. a very large selection, great seating area, good staff, things like that. So when it comes to you guys looking at retailers, you know, some, I think some people have this, this uh, mistaken idea that if a retailer comes to you and wants to sell your cigars, of course, you're going to say, yeah, here's our cigars, carry our cigars. But you, you have a selective process when it comes to retailers that you're going to partner with. So what, what do you look for in a retailer when it, when you decide to, um, uh, d when you're making the decision whether or not you're going to bring them on as a retail partner? Man, you're, you're asking for the whole playbook tonight. Um, <laughs> well, so, you know, I'll start, I'll start by saying um, the, the customer is always right in the sense that um, the customer is the, the, where the demand generation starts. If you don't have people buying your products and using your products or services, then, then you don't exist as a business. So, um, you know, if you if you want to, to do business with a specific customer, <clears throat> then the then you have to let that customer define for you how they're going to engage your business, what products they want, how they want them, when they want them, et cetera, and at what price. The the thing is, is that not every customer is right for every business. Meaning, meaning, you know. If you want to do business a certain way, that's that's your choice. Or if you're a customer that wants to buy things a certain way or buy things um, <clears throat> at a certain price or in a certain you know at a certain kind of quality level, they may not be a good fit for every business, right? So <clears throat> I think people people misunderstand the idea. Like if a customer walks into my place, you know, if 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 I go into, for example, um, I mean, what's a good example? If I go into In-N-Out and say, hey, I'm a customer, I'm always right, I want a Whataburger, they're going to say, well, you know, <laughs> sorry, we're, we're just not a good fit, right? Because we, we don't sell that here. We sell, you know, shitty fries and, you know, half-assed California hamburgers. We don't sell, you know, delicious Texas hamburgers. So, so you know, my, my point is, you know, for us, um, and, you know, Mike's going to elaborate more on, you know, how we choose customers. But for us is we know who we are. We know what kind of product we deliver. We know who our end user customer is. And we know what it what it what kind the way customers have to kind of interlock with us to do to, to service the end customer well. And we know some some retailers aren't a good fit, meaning, um, you know, I mean, as a starter, if you don't have a walk-in humidor and you don't have kind of regular staff that really works to understand the product and understand what it is you're selling, um, if, if you aren't the kind of place that builds new customers and educates customers, uh, and you're, then you're probably not a good fit for us. So it's not as much about us being selective in terms of, you know, gracing stores with, with the privilege of carrying Roma. It's more about understanding what kind of stores we do well with and then understand. And then, as we go through the process of, of, you know, first of all, we don't go out and look for customers to sell to. Um, our we generate the demand with the end consumer, like Mike said, and then the end consumer goes to their retailer and says, "Hey, 
how come you don't sell Romacraft? And, you know, generally, if it's a person who's going to be interested in Romacraft and there's a there's a kind of a critical mass of those guys at the given store, then that that's a good indication that that store is at least meets the basic criteria of the kind of store we want to, to work with. And then from that point, the store contacts us, um, hopefully through email or through our 800 number or some other professional method other than Instagram dis- direct messages. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and then that, that customer will start to engage us. And then at that point, Mike or John will start to interview them in, in, in the sense that, you know, let me tell you about who we are. This is why you're here, hearing about us from your customers. Um, this is the kind of products we make. This is how we produce cigars. This is how we deliver cigars. This is the ordering process. It's a little more engaged than than with uh, than with some uh, manufacturers. Just have a lot of product, <coughs> and you know we slowly kind of work through all the reasons why they wouldn't necessarily work out with us. And then hopefully once we launch them, then they're a good fit. And then we do a lot of work to help support them in the early months so that they, they are successful with us. Because at the end of the day, we want those – our goal as a company is to, is to try to, to, to get our product that we make to the people that want it mm-hmm. you know, as efficiently as possible so that it's getting to them fresh, high quality, and, and you know, at the right price. So um, – that's that's our selection process. Okay. Pretty much. Uh, and what when it comes to cuz I've heard I've heard you talk about this um a few times as far as you know production numbers for the year um you try to you try to keep a uh a, a good handle on those production numbers for a lot of different reasons but you know there's the demand can sometimes far outweigh the production abilities that that you know you're either willing or able to keep up with so when when do you how do you gauge when the right time is to make a move to say okay we're we're actually able to in a quality manner bump up production what what do you look for to gauge that well, our production at the factory really is constrained by the space we have in our current facility. Um, so Mike was just down there this week. Um, Mike hasn't actually been down there since we hit kind of our 20, peak production of twenty five, thirty thousand 30,000 a week, you know, a, a week. So, um, you know, just the amount of tobacco that we are having to store, um, that we're being able to purchase and having to store the finished goods, uh, you know, the actual finished cigars while they're aging. The the facility itself limits us um, right now. Um, you know, what we do is, you know, we kind of always target it to be really successful at this 30,000 cigar a week, which is about 1.2 million cigars a year. And, um, you, you know, it differs every year, but, you know, that's pretty much, you know, about 50% um, – Intemperance, either BAEC or Whiskey Rebellion. It's about 20% um, Cro-Magnon, about 15 to 20% Aquitaine, and, you know, 15 uh, or, or 20% um, Neanderthal. And then most, the majority of our limited editions, with the exception of maybe Kraft, um, 
and Baca and Wonderlust, they all kind of fall into the, um, you know, different sizes within one of those brands. So it falls into those numbers. Overall, our limited edition stuff, our limited production stuff that we do every year is about 15 to 20% of our overall production. Uh, if you include craft and Wonderlust and Baca, if you just include kind of the limited sizes, it's, it's less than about 7%. So, um, you know, our, our production beyond that, in terms of where we, we, what kinds of cigars we make are within, for example, BA or, or which within intemperance, whether we make BA, EC or Whisk Rebellion really is based on the, the wrapper, the timing of when the wrapper is in the factory against the production. Um, and then, you know, when we have production capacity, because we, we don't have all the components to make something else, that's when we slip in projects like Baca and Wonderlust and, and those kinds of things, craft. So, um, you know, we generally get most of our wrapper towards the end of the year, our heavy wrappers like uh, Broadleaf and, and uh, San Andreas. And, and so we, we, we really produce heavily Cro-Magnon Neanderthal uh, in November, you know, October, November, December. We, so we sell it, you know, you know in, in February, March, April, May. That's more heavily uh, those those kinds of cigars. Uh, even though we do kind of try to ration it out throughout the year, it, it's kind of more seasonal. And then uh, pretty much all through the year, we make Aquitaine in the intemperance lines. And then, in, you know, in between those lulls of production is when we make, you know, the other things. Okay. Um, but some years, for example, three years ago, um, you know, we had a San Andreas limitation. So we, we made far less Neanderthal than we had previously. Um, last year, for example, or two years ago, we had a, a broadleaf limitation. So we only made about half as, of, as much as normal. Last year, um, 2019's broadleaf that we used last year, we actually had about twice as much as we would normally have. So we actually had two production cycles of broadleaf, um, which, is, which, you know, which ended up us having twice as many Cro-Magnons as we normally have. But the truth is, and, and we say this all the time, you know, we have about 70 uh, different Vitolas in the different brands, 70 or 80. Maybe it's up to 80 now. I haven't counted them recently. But um, we could make, and, and this is not an exaggeration, we could make 1 million Cro-Magnon craniums a year and sell all of them. We could make 1 million uh, Neanderthal HNs and sell all of them. So, you know, our demand is always going to be higher than our production. Um, you know, what you don't see us doing is you don't see us selling chromagnet craniums and HNs for $20 just because you can, right? Our, our prices are really based on our underlying cost drivers and a fixed kind of profit margin. And because we have very low costs here in the States and because we're very efficient all the way through, we make really good profit margins, uh, and still sell the cigars at, you know, probably a dollar, two dollars less than we probably should sell them for in terms of the market. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're not so much about trying to grow the business as much as we are about keeping the quality and keeping the uh, all of the little pieces interacting the way that they're supposed to. And uh, and the people who really understand who, you know, we don't for example, we don't advertise. We don't do anything really other than one show we advertise for uh, uh, the Cigar Authority, the uh, 
the after the after show we do. Yeah. And, and, we, and really, you know, that's kind of a, a discount function. You know, it's a it's a kind of a rebate function of the business we do with two guys. Right. Really, it's not as much advertising as much as is. It's just that. So, um, you know, we don't do any we don't do anything to really create demand. Um, we really focus on keeping, you know, 250, 300 really good retail partners uh, managed uh, with, with good inventory and good back orders and good ordering and, and making sure that the people who, you know, buy our product day in and day out can get it, um, you know, somewhere close. Is that, if that makes sense? Yeah. Are there, um, are there discussions or thoughts, you know, um, about possibly someday, whether it's sooner or, or, you know, couple of years in the future, um, kind of moving up into a larger space, um, uh, increasing production, things like that. Is that something you guys think is, uh, because it's, it's, it's a timing thing that I would assume you guys really have to, to analyze closely and make sure that it's the right move if you're going to increase production. So uh, is that something you guys talk about on a semi-regular basis? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, based on, you know, our experience now and our raw material inventory and based on the talent uh, that we the team we have uh, in the customer base we have, we could probably easily move to two million, two and a half million cigars without without really anyone noticing. Um, it would really just mean shorter back order cycles. We wouldn't even necessarily probably even have to increase the number of, of retailers we have, to be honest. Uh, we we could open up our the amount we sell to CI and Famous and JR a little bit more, and we could you know eliminate the back orders, uh, kind of the the three month cycle we have with uh, with the, the the brick and mortar retailers, and probably do two and a half million cigars a year. Um, our discussions were, let's get past FDA, which was a big which was a big uh, hurdle. The second one was let's get the tobacco lined up which we've been, I mean, Mike can tell you every spare inch of the factory has a, has a pile of, you know, Quintales in it, you know, just tons of tobacco. And um, then, you know, the next thing is to build our own new facility in, in Nicaragua in a place where we can do it the way we want to do it. And also where it's still convenient for our existing employees to get to and from work. And then, you know, once we have that extra space, which we need, regardless of whether our production increases or not, um, then we can start the discussion about do we add two more pair? Do we add four more pair? Which which I think would be fairly easy to do. Um, but, uh, you know, without without any huge bump. But we have those discussions all the time. Yeah. I think the thing that people kind of overlook is is it takes a lot of discipline to do it the way that we do it. And what I mean by that is, like in the back of your mind, there's always this thought is like, you know, if you increase production or if you did this, you know, um, could you could you one make more money? Could you one make more cigars? How much is ego? How much of that is is um, one of the things that we set out at an early time when, when we kind of thought this through was, you know, we could we could make a living an honest living at this scale. Right. Um, you know, the advantage of the people who live in Nicaragua you know, obviously, if they make a, a good chunk of money, they're not paying income tax like we pay income tax, right? So there's some advantages of, of having, you know, your, your company structured in one way or the other. 
Um, but when you look at what we do um, in the, you know, you can manage the scale that we do. And, and when you start trying to increase and kind of grow, um, there's, there's, you know, there are a lot of things that you have to kind of navigate through, right? So, um, for example, if you, you know, we're not growing broadleaf, you know, Connecticut broadleaf, right? So how, how, you know, if you're already having kind of troubles with that now or San Andreas right now, you know, how, how do you navigate those channels? If you said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to scale the capacity, but then you don't have specific types of tobacco that you need to make the, the cigars that you would like to make. Right. So, I mean, there's, there's, a, so in those conversations, you kind of, it's a game of chess. It really is. And I think that people kind of overlook those. It's one thing to say, yeah, we should do this and let's go do it and not execute it. But, but I think, um, you know, one of the things that you really kind of have to look at is, okay, you know, what are the risks? What are the, you know, what's the, you know, pros and cons of doing those? And then, you know, obviously how do you mitigate those risks? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, like for example, for example, this year, um, you know, I don't think we've talked a lot about this, but, um, Esteban has always um, had a little bit of a growing operation. So Esteban kind of grew up in Nicaragua in Fidel Olivas' organization uh, and, and, you know, specifically Lorena and, you know, using Pueblo Nuevo, which is becoming more popular for everyone. But um, these farmers in Lorena, Esteban's been working with them for years. And then even after Fidel Olivas kind of stopped operations, um, he still kind of helped subsidize some of the crops in order to kind of – keep a foot in the game, you know, make a little bit of money on the side. Well, in the last year or so, Esteban's really expanded. Um, he, he has another company outside of uh, Nico Sueño where he, he's a grower now. And so like this year, I think he's, he's working on, I don't know, was it two Manzana or, or three Manzana uh, uh, of, of a crop of Esteli tobacco. So, you know, <clears throat> pretty quickly, we're going to be in the position to where Instead of going out and looking for Esteli tobacco every every year all the time, uh, and just buying, you know, the, when we find the right tobacco, buying it, we're going to be in a position where we have a, a ton of it, and that being one of the most popular tobaccos in that region, being to what I think is the best Esteli tobacco in, in Regadillo, um, that that tobacco then not only helps us kind of be able to double our size if we want to, because that's a main component that's limiting um, from a filler perspective. But it also gives us a lot of really high quality material that we can trade for small amounts of other things that we need. So if other people, for example, have um, Jalapa, like I was talking to uh, uh, Luciano, for example, they have a big growing operation in Pueblo Nuevo and Jalapa, and we use a little bit of both of those. but, you know, being able to trade Esteli tobacco for for uh, that, it changes a, a lot of dynamics for us. Um, you know, we've gone ba- we've gone through different ways of, of, of doing San Andreas. But now, in fact, uh, Raul, uh, on behalf of Raul and us, was just in San Andreas uh, working with directly to the source in terms of uh, because Noxa or Nicaprosa has stopped importing. Uh, San Andreas. So now we're getting it directly from from uh, Mexico and making sure that we get the same stuff the right way, cured the right way, uh, fermented the right way, and then, you know, uh, sent to us. Um, we've we've switched from getting uh, Ataparaca and Broadleaf in SLE to getting it from directly from Lancaster Leaf to, to getting 
it directly from Brazil uh, with the Schuster family helping us there. So over the 10 years um, that we've been doing this, we've really dug deep into the supply chain and, and gotten more capable in terms of sourcing the tobaccos that we need, the exact kinds of high quality tobaccos we need. And, you know, the part of that is, is that it's really expensive. Uh, it's a lot more expensive for us than it is, say, for a big operation, yeah. right? Um, but at the same time, because we're so efficient all the way through the process, especially here on the sales and administrative side, um, we're still, we're able to be really competitive. Yeah. So, so um, you know, I mean, that's, you know, the cigar business isn't all, you know, just sitting in lounges and smoking cigars with people and telling <laughs> stories, right? It's a, more than anything, I would say, you know, what we do is um, we manage a, a humongous supply chain that's all mm. over the world, right? I mean, we use tobacco from from Africa. You know, I've recently been, spent a lot of time talking to the Marifels about getting that directly. Um, we, in fact, I think we have some samples coming in this week from, from, from them. Um, really high quality tobacco, which means we can expand Baca, right? Um, we... Uh, we have started looking at really heavy sun-grown Sumatra for, for a new line of cigars um, and, and securing the supply chain for that, which actually starts happening about two years before you actually introduce a new product, right? You get the trademark and start sourcing the tobacco, and then about two years later, you start to see it, right? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of those things that we do constantly. I mean, that's, that's what we do for a living. We don't, you know, we don't just sit around and smoke cigars, even though it does seem like that sometimes. <laughs> We have a great viewer question. Oh, yeah. What's okay. That? Yeah. This that, one here? Yep, that one there. So Paul asks, any chance of a Wonderlust or Baca Lancero? Yeah, so with um, with the change in the FDA, um, I don't know that we'll ever bring Wonderlust into the States for a lot of reasons. And I don't know if Baca will ever – maybe if this thing with the Marifels works out, it'll be more – uh, you know, it'd be a broader, we still have a limitation on Haunter and filler for that blend that we have to solve. But, you know, we, we make Weaselitos in both of those, which means we bunch Lanceros in both of those cigars and then cut them in half and make Weaselitos. Yeah. So, so there already are per se, um, Lanceros in both of those. We just haven't, you know, only we've smoked them. <laughs> So it's just so, the, it, they're they're basically half lanceros, like four, three and a half, or four by by thirty eight. Yeah, the three and a half by thirty eight. So, yeah. you know, lanceros are one of those things. Like everybody loves to talk about them, but you know, <laughs> it's. Like, yeah. I am on. I am on a campaign <laughs> to bring lanceros back to where they should be. Yeah. For good luck. Good luck with that. I mean, like, like our. Our, our OM, the uh, Neanderthal Lancero, is a miracle of cigar making. I mean, because we put seven kinds of tobacco in, in a Lancero with the double Lajero from Pennsylvania, right? Which getting, you know, that, starts, that cigar starts out at like a 46 or a 48 and then becomes a 38 through the tobacchiato process. So there's no other way you could make a Lancero with that much tobacco. Mm. Um, which is why that cigar is so strong and complex for a Lancero. There's just really no comparison on the market. There really is not. I mean, the closest I would say would maybe be the La Florida Dominicana Double Lajero um, Lancero, which is just a beast mm -hmm. as well. You know, it's a lot of flavor and body. But 
um, it's a different kind of cigar than the, than the Neanderthal. So well, we know how to we know how to make Lanceros. It's just yeah. we, there's not many people that smoke them. <laughs> well, and for correct me if I'm wrong, but for from what I understand, when it comes to Cameroon for the Baca, the 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 leaf sizing plays a factor too, if I remember right, for for that particular type of tobacco that you would use for the 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 Cameroon wrapper when it comes to you know a seven inch long cigar, does that play yeah. a factor as well? Yeah, I mean Ecuadorian Cameroon and Honduran Cameroon and and other varietals of Cameroon seed tobacco are all fairly large um, relative, but um, real African Cameroon like the kind the Mirafel cell. And the kind that that we get from previously from Gilbert Oliva, that kind of tobacco, especially the kind that's heavier and darker, is smaller leaves. Yeah. And um, so that's why when we, you know, this year our Baca production is all the sizes, but we basically had to select out larger leaves from three years of tobacco in order to get enough large leaves to make just 250 boxes, for example, of the of the 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 uh, Toro. So. It is limiting, but hopefully with these samples we're getting this week from the Marifels, there there are larger ones, and it's just whether the texture and the and the color is right. Because yeah. Cameroon, like Ecuador, Connecticut, is not fermented, mm-hmm. so whatever color it cures at is the color that you you have. And and we we like we like. In fact, the only reason why we have Cameroon is because it's too dark for the projects that the original owner had it for. So we really like that that kind of dark end of, of Cameroon. It's not yeah. necessarily as pretty, but it's, it has a lot more strength of flavor. And we, you know what people may not realize if you didn't listen to our show on Saturday with Jeremiah, um, the Marifel farms, they only use and sell 5% of for cigar for cigars. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for, for cigars. For I should cigars, say for yeah. premium cigars. Yeah. Five percent is what their yield is for premium cigars. Yeah, the rest of it ends up in bobbins for uh, machine-made cigars. Yeah, and that's just a—I mean, a crazy number to me. So then, if so, if, let's look at that five percent. Just curious. So when you guys get bales of tobacco in the factory, um, then what what type of percentage would you say on average? is good enough for a wrapper leaf for the current production of Baca? Well, um, or other brands. So, so, you know, we use Cameroon also as a binder. Yeah. So, um, so where we have been buying Cameroon is we've been buying it kind of at the tail end of someone else's production process, right? So these are the ones that are too small, too dark, whatever. And so that's how we've been able to, to buy it is because you know, they make brand X at certain sizes, it's certain um, color, and then they yield out some. And, and, you know, this is where when people say we only use the best tobacco, <laughs> you know, what, you know, the best tobacco for the person who bought that, that Cameroon was the larger, lighter leaves. For us, the best tobacco is the smaller, darker ones, right? So um, when, when, we, when we get that in the past for Baco, the Cameroon, um, you know, for example, when we were working on the project with Jack Tarano and we got the uh, the tobacco from from Scandinavia, it was like 80% binder, in my opinion. I mean, that's how we judged it. So um, 
it was really hard to make something that, you know, was, was even worth doing. Yeah. Um, now Espinoza took that at Lazona and made the war zone and it won all kinds of awards and accolations. So that's just our opinion of that tobacco versus their, how they were able to use it. Right. Um, so there's, I'm not saying it's good or bad, or we had a better decision. It's just the way our factory worked with it. Um, yeah. but I, but by the time you get the tobacco from someone like Marifel, it's very specific to the, to the color grade and the, and the quality and the size that you want. So it's very high percentage ends up being exactly what you want. It's just your prices go up. Yeah. The more specific you are the, on the sort, the higher the yield. So instead of getting, you know, 140 pounds, that's 80% binder, but costs you $17 a pound. Now you're getting 140 pounds. That's 95% wrapper. And it costs you 50, $58 a pound. Mm. Right. So, you know, the, the actual cost per wrapper doesn't change so much. It's really more about the yield. Okay. So one of the things I'm curious about, from you guys is when it comes to special editions or limited production stuff, I, I, know, I know that sometimes, and, and there are other companies that do this, you know, well, a lot of companies that have, you know, special editions, limited runs, things like that. So sometimes from what I've seen, uh, limited production runs and special editions can, can really, you know, they, they, they drive a lot of buzz and they can drive sales they can sort of increase uh, sort of consumer desire that that in the end, after the limited run is, is sold out, it can sometimes even lead people to your regular production stuff, maybe if they weren't familiar with it before. So um, that's not usually the way it happens. But OK, so but well, we did. We just had this long conversation. <laughs> so right, where Mike, is, uh, where is the yeah. fine, where is the fine line between consumer desire or consumer demand for you know being the one of the cool kids that got the limited stuff and and the regular production stuff and and how do you guys gauge that well i think that the i mean obviously at the end of the day right you're always going to have core lines so you have to so if it's a fo so let me back up as a consumer there was a shop in houston um it was called lone star tobacco and this guy would have you know, vintage you know, stuff. Like if you went and dug around, like you could find some really, really cool things that you just didn't see anymore, right? And what I'm, I'm talking like, you can go in and say, hey, do you have the Tony Brahani, you know, Bahia Gold? And he'd be like, oh yeah, let me look down here. And he'd pull, you know, <laughs> kind of, you know, dig around, he'd, you know, pop it out, right? But every time that I would go into his store as a consumer and I, I would kind of geek out over certain things, he would say, oh, you know what, that you got, you know, a handful of this or some of that or whatever, you might appreciate it. And he would go up and, you know, grab something from the top and go, you probably have never seen this before, but since you bought all this other stuff, you know, if you want to get one of these, I'll, I'll sell you one of these because I know he knew that I was, I was a consumer. Right. And then I would appreciate it. Right. So obviously like for me, my concept, or I think collectively is that's how people should ought to treat you know, kind of the limited editions, the things that you don't necessarily see. Um, because at the end of the day, if you just throw it on the shelves and, and it just becomes kind of mushed in with all the other Coraline stuff, like there's really no, there, there is a, no special about it. I mean, unless 
unless the bloggers and the and and people are are doing reviews on it or whatever, like like it just it just kind of gets tucked away. Like that that's kind of what do you think about that, Skip? Like is that? Well, I mean, I'll give you a good example. When I was coming up as a cigar smoker, um, I kind of came up where Opus X and the Don Carlos and those things were always limited, no matter what. No, you know, if a store had them, you were lucky, right? If they if they got if they got that stuff in, if they got Don Carlos torpedoes in, or if they got number twos or whatever, um, everything back then, anything good was limited. So especially getting good, I mean, you know, there were the curly head Fuentes and the, but even for me, like even the Unica 400 Maduros were, would sell out. So, um, you know, I would come in, buy a bundle, two bundles, a box every now and then if I could afford it, I'd buy a handful of Fuentes. And then, when, when a box of, say, for example, which was a unicorn at the time, like a bestseller or the, the Hemingway work of art or, you know, the which I think was the the bestseller was like a little bit larger than a short story. And then there was like a barber pole short story, which I think was called the work of art. And there were all these kind of cigars that you heard existed, but you didn't really know. And the, when those came in, they went in the back, and then, you know, Chad, the guy who owned the store, uh, Emerson's in Virginia, uh, he would say, hey, Skip, have you ever heard of this cigar? And I'd be like, yeah, I heard about it. I saw, you know, Andrew Welch had a picture of, you know, all those cigars in the Fuente alcove or whatever. He's like, hey, how would you like to have one? I'm like, sure. He's like, they're $15. I'm like, no, I'll take one, you know. And then you smoke it, and you realize, okay, it's cool. And back then, you didn't really have an Instagram where you could take a picture of it or whatever, but it was cool, and and maybe you kept it in your humidity for a little while. But then when you finally smoked it, you go, you know, that was really an interesting experience. But it isn't that much greater than I would rather just have a regular supply of short stories, right, yeah. or a regular supply of bestsellers. And the the thing was though that I felt really appreciated as a customer, um, and also cool as a as a cigar geek that that I got to smoke something that that you know nobody had really seen before. And a lot of times if I got two of them, I would really kind of try to share one of them with a buddy of mine and he would do the same for me. So, you know, for us, the the limited stuff we do, there's there's a practical reason why we do some of it. So, for example, um, if we're making five by 56s, we have five by 56s in every single line. We have it in ECBA, WR. We have it in Neanderthal now. We have it in um, Cro-Magnon, Aquitaine. We have it in Baca. We have we uh, so the point is the the fifty six ring gauge molds. If we're working, you know, if we're only making uh, f- you know five thousand cigars a day, and there's two pairs of rollers or three pairs of rollers that are working on fifty sixes, um, that's consumed all the fifty six molds, and someone else is working on the fifty ring gauge uh, you know perfecto molds, which we also have in every size. And someone else is using 46 for either anthropology or the the 4x46. So what happens is every now and then there's an odd pair out where we either we don't have demand for other sizes or we don't have wrapper of certain size or the wrapper's too big. Like for example, in Neanderthal, uh, Mike was a part of this discussion this week. Um, we've completed our production capacity or our production order for. Uh, all of Neanderthal except for HN when we make three, 4,000 HNs um, a week and we just can't keep up with it. But we had a bunch of really small San Andreas wrappers that were already deveined and that were already humidified. And so, you know, Wilmer, come, our production manager comes up to, to me and Mike and says, okay, I, can I make more SGPs? 
And we have a lot of SGPs actually already in the aging room, even though we have a lot on back order too. So, so I just know that, you know, I don't want to end up in an excess capacity situation with SGP. So I said, okay, let's make, let's make more Hawks D's. Let's make more Weaselitos. Let's make more, um, you know, you see what I'm saying is, is we go, we try to figure out how we can use. And so we end up making those, those special size things a lot of times in order to consume larger wrappers or smaller wrappers, or because we need a, a, a production for a pair that doesn't have work because all the molds that they otherwise would need are consumed. Yeah. So, but from a, from a sales and a perspective, if you're a guy that comes into the store and buys a handful of aromas all, all the time, let's say for example, you're a guy who buys BA all the time. Well, when, when boxes of revenge come in, then, um, you know, it's a nice thing to have that's different. Uh, or a box of uh, Lonsdale's. And Lonsdale may not be something you smoke all the time, but if you like the BA blend, that's something that's great, right? So, and and actually we allocate the uh, the limited sizes. Like, for example, if we have a, the goodness, which is the 5x56 box press that comes out in EC, whenever that comes out, 250, 300 boxes, Mike and John will look at who bought EC in the last two quarters, and they'll call from the top of the list down until they're gone. So yeah. if you sell a lot of EC, you'll get the EC limited. If you sell a lot of Whiskey Rebellion, you'll get the Tartan Feathered if, or, or whatever. If you sell a lot of Cro-Magnon, which is pretty much every customer, then you'll get a good shot at, say, Black Irish, right? But when 10 boxes of, or five boxes of Black Irish comes in to, say, Cigar Hustler, he doesn't just sell them like that, make, make you know, 800000 bucks and go, oh, boy, I really just made my, my year, right? He, he, he calls the guys that have been buying Roma from him instead of from everybody else all year long and says, hey, how would you like a five-pack of, of Black Irish? If you put in an order, I could throw that in there, you know? Yeah. And so that's the way that we tried it. Just the way I learned from the bestsellers and from the work of arts, um, you know, because we definitely don't want to be one of those companies. And Mike can speak more to this perspective is we definitely don't want to be one of those companies where the only thing anybody wants from us is, quote unquote, the limiteds. Mm. Because everything we make is limited. There's nothing different about the blend in a, a Cro-Magnon Venus than there is in a Cro-Magnon Knuckle Dragger. It's just a different size, right? Yeah. But – um, you know, there I could name five or six brands where the only thing they really ever sell, like you couldn't name the core line from some of these companies because they have no core line. All they sell is the quick hit 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 cigar runs. And then, you know, people scoop those up and half the time they end up being disappointed in them because yeah. they're, you know, not because they're not good, but because they're not the thing that they want. If you like Cro-Magnon, you're going to like that weird size in whatever Cro-Magnon we make. Yeah. Well, or they'll, the, on the opposite side of that, I've seen people and I've even experienced this myself where a, a certain brand puts out so many limiteds and I, I buy a, maybe a fiver of one particular limited and I ended up, I end up loving it. And then I, I honestly, as a consumer, I get a little upset knowing that this is not something I'm going to be able to get on a regular basis. You know, if it, if it becomes a cigar that I really enjoy, I would prefer to just be able to buy it, you know, at one, buy one box a quarter and keep it in my humidor regularly instead of knowing that it was a one and done. Yeah. And, and I don't necessarily like to, I don't like to chase beers, whiskeys or cigars. I mean, I, I'm too busy. Um, 
Jason watches, so I don't have time to. I don't watch watches watches and handguns. We we've moved on. We yeah. don't have time to chase limited beers. But if there is a, a beer that's limited that I know I really really like, uh, you know, like Chaco Vesa Barrel Aged, I I try to to have a I try to find a contact that I know can get that and let them know that every time that comes out we want a few and then we do the same for them, right? Yeah. Um, but. But, you know, this 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 whole, you know, um, calling around to 50 stores to find a cigar that's pretty much like maybe not even as good to you as the Coraline cigar. And then, you know, having people try to charge double or triple the MSRP in order for you to get it. To me, that really contaminates what the our cult, what the culture I grew up in, in terms of the cigar business. So we intentionally, do, you know, go out of our way not to. Uh, try to create that kind of environment, even though sometimes it happens and um, and we have no control over it. Right. Well, I, I'll give you the far extreme of that, right? So there was a couple of years ago when we, we got, um, I want to say about 150 boxes of Black Irish, right? So I took, um, I, I could have easily taken the top 10 or top five guys and said, hey, you know, you can have or even one, one customer and just said, here, take them. Um, but I didn't. What I did was everyone who had an order going out in that shipment, I just allocated them a box and just sent it on its way and was like, you know, hey, thank you for your business and kind of left it at that. And, and a few it. retailers actually said, I didn't order this. Why did you why did you give this to me? It's like, well, you can yeah. send it back. No problem. Yeah, you send it back. But there, there, were, there was one particular that called me and says, you know, what, what the fuck am I going to do with this one box? I've got 80 members, you know, um, you know, and was upset that that it wasn't enough to to kind of satisfy his shop right like for me on my perspective it was kind of like hey here's this is just a you know listen i'm i don't know what you do with it right again it goes back to the way i think as as the way i grew up and the way consumers kind of dealt with you know retailers you know helped me out along my way um you know i didn't it wasn't it wasn't but because i couldn't send them you know 80 to 150 boxes of one particular size or one cigar, like they were upset that, that I sent them one box. Right. And it wasn't, it wasn't really like, you know, maybe I didn't think it through, but I, it was really just kind of a gesture. It wasn't really anything, you know, pays hey, kind of something unique and new and, you know, holidays are coming and, you know, whatever. And, um, but to get a phone call where someone's like actually truly upset that you only sent them a box, um, of something, you know, kind of threw me, you know, for a loop. Right. Cause I didn't even know how to respond to that. Cause I, it wasn't, there was no, there was no malicious, you know, again, it was really kind of just from the heart. Right. Yeah. And that, that customer was not right. By the way. <laughs> yeah. That customer was not always right. So, you so know, but, 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 but we, my, my point is, 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 you know, a lot of, a lot of manufacturers will use, you know, the, the limited editions as a driving force to, to kind of help sell core line. Right. And, um, Kind of, since Skip brought it up, right? So, I mean, we'll talk about like William LaRue or Weller products, right? Like when people look at how much other things that they have to sell other than the bourbon, right? So that's, that's Fireball, that's, you know, the Wheatley Vodka, that's Buffalo Trace, that's, you know, all this other, like you could spend, you know, a million dollars just in other non-Weller products just to be, to get allocated a bottle of Weller 12 or a case of Weller 12 or a case of, you know, Eagle Rare or whatever, and you know, um, it, it's always like from from us, from my perspective, it's always been like, okay, since you've done really well in the Coraline stuff, you know, hey, you deserve to have some of this, 
you know, kind of, kind of the cherry on top, right? Because this stuff yep. is, you know, it's going to sell. People are going to come in and look for it. But, but there's, there's this movement in the industry right now where people are so focused on new, and it's been going on since you know 2007, 2008. But I think right now, even more so, because people are are buying online and social media and Instagram, Facebook have allowed it to get to this point to where you know it's like, hey, I got the whatever, this is what I'm smoking. But if you ask any of us, Skip nine times out of ten has an intrigue. You know, BA intrigue in his hand. I either have virtue or an anthropology, octree anthropology in my hand, right? Like, you know, we smoke Coraline because and I and I could literally smoke whatever I want. I mean, you yeah. know, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and 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 I'll say another thing about what Mike just said is, if you build your business to where you bring a ton of those kind of you know unicorn hunters in to buy cigars, and that becomes your cash cow you basically are fucking yourself mm -hmm. what you want to do is you want to get the guy who smokes two cigars a day three cigars a day a box a month whatever who, who buys 25 singles a week or whatever you want to get that guy on a regular basis walking into your place and getting the thing that he always wants yeah. and then you throw the cherry on top and say hey you know even if you don't smoke this, maybe trade it and get someone else excited about cigars or maybe just for a special occasion, right? Or yeah. whatever. If you build your whole business on those kinds of customers, you will never have a challenge because you always have core products that you can present to them. Right. If you, if you build it on the unicorn guy, you know, he, he's, he's, you know, he's involved in a relationship with 10 different retailers, and probably he's turning around and becoming your competition in the black in the gray market or the black market, selling to other people for double what he paid you for it. Oh, absolutely. So, so you, so basically, if that's the business you want to be in, if you want to be in the business of just the the crazy, you know, super hipster branded <laughs> derivative bullshit cigar, where everybody's calling around, it's great to have that three thousand dollar hit or that four thousand dollar hit, but. That's like a sugar high. It's never going to last. Right. And you know, what, what the fuck do I know? <laughs> right. But I've only been around this business for 30 years and seen who makes it and who doesn't. Yeah. Right. Well, Matt has already done it, but, um, since we don't have a plasma cutter in the studio, <laughs> I'm going to show those who have complained about these bands, how you get, how simple life can be. How if you just, simple yeah. Wait, do, if you wait, just do the right just thing, watch, watch, watch. I hope Holy the dojo. Oh, look at that. That's so. I hope, the, do, I hope the hope the dojo guys are watching. <laughs> we love you, Jordan. We, we love do. you, Jordan. We love you, Eric. But yep. it's so simple. Look at that. And look, look, one piece. All everything's fine. Everything's <laughs> fine. Nothing to see here. Please disperse. No. So uh, another supply chain thing that's kind of funny is. Um, so I specifically wanted that kind of paper, and it's very rarely used in the cigar business. Um, it's used really commonly. It's called wine paper because it's used for wine labels very commonly. And we actually use it not only for our labels, but also for our uh, insert follows and also for um, our little brand tags on the outside of the box. And um, we're the only people in SLE who use that paper. And there's, I don't know there's anyone in Dominican that uses it either. So um, it has to come in in these huge rolls. So Cigar Rings has a ton of that, and we never have to worry about running out of it. Because <laughs> so, nobody wants it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
So, but the, you know, the downside of it is that when you, know, when you put a little bit of glue on it and you hold it for a few seconds, which they do, um, it's very porous. So it really takes the vegetable glue and really creates a very strong bond. Yeah. The, the challenge with that, the, the positive thing is, is what I'll tell you is you will almost never see glue actually on tobacco of our cigars. Correct. Because they, because they don't have to use a lot of, of vegetable glue. They right. use very small amount. Yeah. So, so you, you never see the band sticking to the cigar. But Ripping if you're in the if, back of it. Yeah. If you're in the habit of normally just, you know, kind of peeling it off like a, you know, like an easy stick label, um, you're going to be disappointed because it's very hard, to, especially as dense as our cigars are. There's not enough sponginess to, to, to squeeze the cigar in in order to get the label on yeah. your finger underneath it. Yeah. So a lot of people have learned that the hard way. And <laughs> I get, um, I get at least five messages a week saying, you know, what kind of glue do you use? Why do you, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it goes back to, you know, our cigars are really meant for people who smoke a lot of cigars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, you'll either learn or or you'll move on to a product that's better suited to your <laughs> level of experience. Uh, another viewer question real quick is uh, at current levels of production, how long can you produce Baca if the Marifel deal doesn't go through? Um, I mean, we could probably I mean, we could produce it every year. Um, actually, the wrapper is not the limiting uh, a factor, the. The limiting factor for us, the most limiting factor, is the two types of Honduran tobacco we use, mm. because the people who make really good high-end Honduran tobacco do not do not like to sell it. Uh, Nestor Placencia, as nice as he is, as great as our relationship is, he says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," and then when you talk to the people at the factory, it's like, "No, no, no," <laughs> and then and then Christian says, "You know, fuck off," and then as uh, as good as my relationship was with Christian, he says, "Fuck off," and then you know we. We go tell Raul, hey, stop making Christian cigars until he sells us some filler. And then, <laughs> you know, there's that. And then, you know, of course, Christian's dad's like, sure, I'll sell you some. And, and then you drive up and you put it in the back of a truck and then you have to smuggle it across on, you know, it's it, it's not. That's the most limiting factor. I mean, there's a lot of Honduran tobacco out there. There's just not a lot of really, really good Honduran tobacco. Like yeah. is the case with tobacco in general. Yeah. There's no shortage of tobacco. There is a always a shortage of good tobacco good tobacco yeah so just uh for everybody out there my, i fired up my second cigar the fomorian that's a brave move it's a brave move it's, well this is and this is from if i if i i'm pretty sure this is from the original production run uh and it's i i love it i think it's very good i i'm i'm one of those weirdos that that uh that likes candela so I think it's one of the best candelas ever made, but that's just me. And I'm, not all candelas are equal. Right. Well, that, that one doesn't taste like a candela, which is why it's good. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> right. Again, again, you know, we wait for the darkest candela. Uh, it comes from Noxa when they make a ton of candela cigars. I got a echo now. No, it's no, it's all right. But they take uh, they make a lot of candela cigars, and the darkest tobacco. Um, uh, actually, we use that. And then another interesting thing about the Fomorian is the fresher it is, the better it is. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I will say that this one being, I don't know, three, when, when did the Fomorian first come out? Four years ago? Five no, years ago? 
2014, I think we made oh. the first one for a uh, DC tweet up. Yeah. So, it, you know, it, it definitely doesn't have that twang anymore, but I'm okay with that. It's still, well, it, it's, it's, still Ecuador, it's Ecuador, Connecticut. Yeah. Right. So it probably tastes now at this point more like Ecuador, Connecticut than Candela. Yeah. Especially if it's in the top layer of the box and it's gives us a lot of UV exposure. Um, this I got was... a unicorn of a unicorn. Oh, let's... <laughs> so, so, so while they were down there, they were making the HN. And so I asked them to make me the HN blend with the Candela wrapper over it. So mm. I don't know if even, even Skip has had, had this one. So they didn't have a lot of Candela. So I got, I, I had them make this one. So I'm gonna let this one age out, dry out a little bit for about 30 days or so, maybe a little bit longer and then smoke that, see how that does. Yeah, nice. Mike's Mike spent the week walking around the production floor, going, "Has Skip ever had this? Hey, make me one of these." <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and Skip, I gotta say that uh, Garrett and I brought our flavor wheels with us. Nice, yep. nice. <laughs> We've got so I'm getting notes of uh, animal oils. Yep, um, and um, if uh, if you're out and uh, you had a fire, polished and- polished furniture. I'm just looking at all the things that are on this wheel. Polished furniture. Um, um, essence of fur. Yeah, essence of fur. Rhubarb. Um, <laughs> I don't even know what rhubarb tastes like, to be honest. <laughs> um, hummus. Isn't that a pie? Rhubarb pie? Is that a thing? Rhubarb pie, yeah. Well, rhubarb is, it, it grows everywhere in the upper Midwest. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's this nasty looking weed that, that people cut the, cut the roots off or cut off the stalks and put a, put a shit ton of sugar on it. And it tastes fantastic. You know, here, here's so I, I apparently I touched a lot of feelings this week. There were, there were a lot of feels. There were a lot of feels. <laughs> right. Um, which is nothing new for me. But uh, here's the point I'm making. And I'm not even being critical of like the hyper specific flavor. No, I always think it's really kind of funny and it's definitely entertaining when Jonathan from, from the Cigar Authority says, you know, um, he'll say something like, uh, have you ever had a, uh, uh, you know, a, whatever those chocolate covered cherries? Okay. So you open the box, you set the cherries aside, and then you smell the bottom of the plastic cover. And it's like, and he'll say stuff like that, right? Um, so, not, no, no, not that, but this other thing. Right? Yeah, but this yeah. other thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's entertaining to me. I mean, you know, if that's really what he tastes and he's just trying to describe something he's tasting, and if especially if you can get into the head of somebody else and go, oh yeah, I taste it too. Um, but but here's the thing about about uh, flavor descriptions. And I was listening to a podcast actually uh, two days ago, and they were talking about a cigar that I'm really interested in trying. And I'll, I'll tell you what podcast and what cigar it was. It was uh, the Hot uh, Ticket. Who yeah. I, I those guys are hilarious. I love yeah. that. Um, Outside of their their fascination with scatological things, like this, <laughs> this there was no poop references in in this week's. There was some vomit talk, which was nice. Yeah. But but I think back to Corey and 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 where he was three years ago, and if he heard what I heard in the five minutes of this episode, where he was talking about Danny's cigar, and I haven't tried Danny's new cigar. I'm really excited to try it. And I really wanted to get their take because they're very direct and, and about their – if they like it, they like it. If they don't like it, they tell you they don't like it. So they loved it. But when he started describing you know, everything from 
strong to sweet to herbal to whatever to creamy to da 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 da. And I'm like, okay, you've put so much on the plate there. I don't really have a good sense of of what it is it tastes like. So I'm just gonna have to try it myself anyway, right? Yeah. So my my point in the in the post was to say, and I gave the example of the the nuts, right? Let's say you had never eaten a pecan or a cashew. Right, but you were generally familiar with the concept of nuts. Yeah, and 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 I said, there's these two handfuls of of nuts, and you can only have one. Which do you want? Because I'm going to eat the other. And you say, well, tell me the difference between the two. And I said, you know, I kind of said this in the post. Where one is kind of you know woody. It has like a kind of the same kind of flavor that you get from the smell of the shell. It's very influenced by the shell. It's got a kind of a gritty uh, mouthfeel to it. You, you, it's really more chewy than it is cr- crunchy. And, um, you know, that's a pecan. And then on the other hand, you have one that's kind of also chewy instead of crunchy. It's oily. It's a little sweet in a weird way. And it's also very savory, Right. And then you chose one, and I said, well, I'm going to give you one of the two. I'm not going to tell you which one. If from tasting the thing that I give you, you can go, oh, that's a pecan. Because based on the way you described it, that's what that is. If I'd given you the other one, you go, oh, that's a cashew, because you described it in a way that lets me. So my point is, if, you know, Sean was in tobacco school this week, and so, you know, you have to deprogram people away from this idea of becoming a you know, a master sommelier of tobacco, right? And you have to say, and you have to say, look, only you have your taste buds. And at the end of the day, you have to be able a year from now, when someone puts a leaf of tobacco in front of you, you have to be able to recall something like, oh, that was oily. That was, uh, you know, savory. That was chewy. This must be a cashew. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, or, or this is, this is, um, you know, salty. This is a little bit uh, crunchy. This must be a peanut. You follow what I'm saying? Yep. So, yeah. and also, if if you're trying to to discern a flavor in tobacco that that, um, for example, if you were smoke, if they had said about this Dominican made cigar that it tasted a little kind of a moldy, musty kind of taste to it, I would have known exactly mm. what tobacco was in it. If they would have said it had a, a grassy hay kind of uh, thing and it has Dominican tobacco, I kind of know what that is. I, yeah. I have a pretty good idea what that is because I know that those descriptors match with a specific kind of, it's either San Vicente or Pelo de Oro or it's, um, you see, you know, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. But if you said it's real heavy and it's, um, has a kind of a spiciness to it, like like a kind of a, a harshness or a spiciness to it and a heaviness to it. And, and, the, and the cigar has Nicaraguan tobacco. I'm like, okay, that's got Condega or that's got Esteli, right? Or if it's kind of herbal and it's kind of sweet, or maybe it's Ometepe or maybe it's, uh, you, you see what I'm saying? I can start narrowing down based on words like that. But when you say things like, you know, whatever, dank cardboard, what you're really saying is it's not very well fermented, right? Yeah. And, you know, when you say things like, you know, you're not you're not doing 
there's definitely some utility in, in people who are reviewing cigars. Because maybe if I have a budget where I can only buy five cigars a week and there's ten new cigars on the market. If you start with some basic taste descriptors like, oh, it's got this musty, moldy kind of, uh, no, you know, kind of overtone to it. I know I don't like those kind of cigars, so that one immediately goes off my list. Yeah. But if you say it has a natural sweetness to it or a, a spiciness to it or a heaviness to it, that may be something I really key in on. So that's going to go on my list. Right. So when the flavor descriptions that you're putting out there have utility that either inform a buying decision or help to educate a consumer about the types of things that they like and, and what that correlates to in terms of types of tobacco. You're not teaching people like McTavish said to taste. You're teaching, you're teaching, you're basically teaching people categories of tobacco flavors. And there's really only so many, mm -hmm. right? And they're not related to food and they're not related. They're related to the five senses, you know, savory, spicy, salty, sweet, uh, uh, sour, bitter. right? Yeah. Bitter. And yeah. so like Arapadaka is bitter. If you like the bitterness in espresso, which I can use as a correlation, um, then you're, you're, you're probably going to find something in that wrapper that you like, especially if you like it based with something heavy. Um, but if you if you don't like if you absolutely hate that flavor like espresso mm -hmm. bitterness, then you're not going to like arapadaca, right? Yeah. So that's something that's a flavor note that has some utility. It has some usefulness. Yeah. It's it's not this pretentious exercise of who can come up, who's got the best palate, because I can tell you I don't have the best palate in the world. Jose Blanco probably uh, Luciano has mm. a much better capability, almost to an, uh, kind of a physical deformity, X-Man <laughs> kind of way of tasting stuff. Yeah. But guess what? I always tell Jose Blanco, if, let's say, let's assume that you're not bullshitting us and you can taste things in the nth degree level of frequency of flavors. That's like being able to hear things that only dogs can hear. <laughs> and the average cigar smoker is never going to appreciate the small nuances of what it is you're trying to blend to. Right. But me, I taste cigars like an average cigar smoker. I tend to be able to pick up a lot of different nuances in heavier tobaccos. Mm -hmm. So where someone who doesn't really smoke heavier tobaccos a lot may be overwhelmed by the, the heaviness so that they can't kind of distinct have a, a distinct kind of spectrum of flavors. I do well in that spectrum, yeah. whereas Mike does a lot better than me in picking up the nuances in milder cigars. I don't know that Mike, maybe Mike does have a better taste, biological ability to taste than I do, but Mike has never described a flavor to me in these bullshit terms because it has no utility. If I'm trying to describe to Mike something in terms of a blending process, which we do sometimes at a distance, like I'll send cigars or I'll leave cigars and then three months after I'm gone, they're, we're smoking them at the same time. We, we don't use language like reviewers use. We use language like tobacco people use, mm -hmm. right? Which is either in the form of the five, six flavors. It's in the form of describing it in the, in the terms of another kind of tobacco we know with, with adjustments, right? Or it's in terms of how that tobacco plays in the, bin, the blend. Is it a heavy tobacco? Is it a bright tobacco? Is it something that tastes good by itself and, and really you're trying to build a, a nuances around it or complexity around it. But, you know, that's my whole point. 
when I got to that section of the podcast, it's like I completely tuned out. I'm like, I came here to hear an honest opinion on this cigar, which I received, which is they loved it. So it's definitely worth trying. But in terms of what, does it taste like Henderson Ventura's other cigars? What kind of Dominican tobacco does it have in it in terms of what can I expect? Those kinds of things I didn't hear. I heard a lot of things, fancy, colorful words. And so, and that's not taking anything away from the Hot Ticket podcast because I still, I consume that podcast as well as many other ones, probably as many as anybody. Yeah. But, but to me, it's, that's where you hit the 30 second skip button, you know, where you're, okay, <laughs> bullshit, bullshit. Okay, let's get back to the, let's get back to, you know, the real stuff. Yeah. Well, that, I think a lot of, you know, I think, I think the majority of cigar smokers are thumbs up, thumbs down kind of people. They either like it or they don't. Um, and I think a lot of cigar sm smokers, especially newer people to cigar smoking, they want to be that super taster. They want to be able to say, you know, this tastes, you know, like, you know, uh, salty nuts or you know, whatever. But do, do you know, do you know why that is that the only reason why that is, is because a wine magazine publisher created that standard in the cigar business before 1994, 1996, not one single master blender in the cigar world, Benji, Eladio, none of them, not a single one of them spoke in terms of wine terms, in terms of food terms, in terms of these bullshit terms, none of them. Not a single one. They spoke in terms of texture. They spoke in terms of, of density. They spoke in terms of body and strength. They spoke in terms of sweetness and, and floral aromas. They did not speak in terms of black pepper, white pepper, red pepper, crushed red pepper, turmeric. They didn't speak in those terms. Thank and they didn't have to. And they were right. still masters. So you're right that there's a go, no-go for most consumers but A, you have to give them the information that helps them make the decision to invest ten or fifteen dollars. Yep. Right? Yep. Um, you know, like, should I smoke this cigar? The answer is yes. Unless you don't smoke cigars. <laughs> Every cigar, if you have the time and, and you and you know a little bit about it, you should always try it. Because you might love it and you might hate it. But either way, you learn something about your taste. And then you know what not to buy in the future. Yeah. So then the next time you say, should I smoke this? The answer is, well, okay, should I smoke Cro-Magnon? Okay, do you like, what What do you normally smoke? Do you like Liga Pravati? Do you like La Florida Minicana? Do you like, uh, um, you know, Tricky Traca? Then you're probably going to like Cro-Magnon. If you don't like any of those, you're probably not going to like it. So, yeah. you know, that's, you know, that's just, that at least has utility. Yeah. Oh, I'm doing a thing. So I, um, I grabbed this out of my humor. This was from the, the pre-release of the when when you made the mode five Vitola of the of the uh, of the Cro Magnon back yeah, in 2013 or something like that. Yeah, that came up. Uh, that actually came up in my memories not too long ago. Uh, the first shipment of Aquitaine mode fives. And I had so uh, yeah, I had I had one each left of of that and this uh, Fomorian, and and I just set them on the desk here, and I said pick one so we're firing these up as number number two cigars yeah uh, aquitaine aquitaine never i've never had one because i mean we have only 10 years but i've never had an aquitaine that lost an inch of of flavor 
Um, we yeah. did smoke. We did smoke a Lonsdale at the factory that was about eight years old the other day, and it was kind of it was really muted unless you retro held it. Yeah. Well, and the um, um, the the Lancero. Uh, I mean, I know it's not officially a Lancero, but um, of of the Aquitaine, yeah, although they they're not old they haven't been around long enough for them to really have a lot of age on them but i would think that over over five years or more they're they're probably gonna you know mellow out a little bit and lose some of that depth but it's it's still it's still kind of moot because it's still gonna smoke properly it's still gonna have all the flavor um and texture characteristics that somebody would expect out of it yeah, those th- those cigars that have really heavy fillers, they um, <clears throat> they have longer staying power. It's because the tobacco it just naturally has a lot of flavor and texture, and they're fermented over a long time in the first place. Mm. So it's not like one of these deals where you're getting kind of a little bit under fermented tobacco that has this hit of harshness that seems like strength, and then it just goes away. Yeah. So let's talk about. Weasel Fest. All right. Um, so last year, um, you know, last year is what it is. Uh, 2020 happened and, you know, we're past it. Uh, Weasel Fest was supposed to happen. And unfortunately, it had to get canceled along with pretty much everything else in the world. So uh, tell us about uh, Weasel Fest 21 and what you guys have lined up and um, how people can get involved. So Weasel Fest was originally to, to celebrate our 10-year anniversary. It was in Memorial Day weekend of 2020. Uh, before we even got too deep into the planning, COVID really forced us to push it out. So we moved it to Labor Day thinking, oh, of course, by Labor Day, this whole COVID thing is going to be done and over with. Um, but by the time Labor Day came around, we were in like the second surge and, and the People's Republic of Austin was locked down like um, <laughs> <laughs> like uh, Portland and, um, and and the rest of uh, California. So the um, w- but by the time we got up to, to the September one, we really thought we were going to be able to do it. And we had, we'd, we'd already sold tickets and we'd already lined up and had contracts with all the bands and the food providers. And so when we canceled September, a lot of people had actually purchased tickets. So we, we had sold about 300 tickets and we ended, we ended up giving people three options. Uh, option one was to uh, just move your ticket to Memorial Day weekend of the next year. Um, option two was to take two of the Catadors in, in exchange for your ticket. And then option three was to get a partial refund after you'd already gotten the weasel packs and everything. So um, we had about 150 people choose option one, about 90 people choose option two, and then about 15 or 20 people choose option three. So um, this year we've, we've waited to the last possible minute to put the, the ticket portal up because of two reasons. One, uh, we had to reconfirm and book all the artists again. Um, and actually, last year, we ended up giving them a large part of the deposit to them, regardless of what happened, because they were all hurting as well. But that bought us a little goodwill. Most of them are almost all all of them, in fact, except for maybe a couple of the beer vendors have have decided to come back this year for sure. Um, 
so what's going to happen is tomorrow or the next day, probably tomorrow, the portal will open up for the 150 people who chose option one. So if you chose option one, uh, you'll be able to log in. You'll be able to book a, a new ticket for this year. It'll go into your cart. And then you'll be able to use your confirmation number from last year, which we'll give to you as a coupon that takes 100% of the ticket price off. So last year, the tickets were 250. This year, I think they're 275. Um, it, but you will also have the ability to upgrade to a VIP. And the, and the portal will tell you what VIP means. Uh, it's kind of more unlimited food and drink. It's um, access to the headquarters during the event. It's access to our beer collection and our bourbon collection. Um, and it's also, um, we have a special thing happening with Staccato, uh, which is one of the premier firearm uh, companies here in Austin or in the world. And they're going to do some training on Friday before uh, Weasel Fest. And they're, we're actually going to go to the to the to one of the coolest shooting ranges in the world uh, together on Sunday. And all your ammo, all everything's paid for. So that comes with VIP. Um, so... Uh, then what will happen is by next Friday, if you chose option two or three of last year, we'll give you early access to the portal so that you can have the opportunity to buy a ticket. And then by next week, we are going to open up the portal to any new ticket buyers. And we'll, we'll be able to sell tickets until they're sold out. Um, we're, we're only going to be able to do it because of the COVID restrictions. We, we only can only do about 300. Uh, so the, here's the problem. The city of Austin still has not approved our permits. We got past the health and safety portion of the permit review, which is the hardest hurdle from a COVID perspective. But there's still kind of like, you know, bureaucrats in the rest of the city government that may throw a wrench in the works. It's, it's unlikely, but it's still possible. Um, but either way, we're going to open it up. You'll be able to buy the tickets, upgrade the tickets, or just, you know, cash in last year's ticket. And then you'll also be able to buy the Catadors. And then our, this year, we're only doing one weasel pack, but it's kind of more stuff. It's more heavy duty. And that is coming probably two weeks before the event in the middle of May. So one of the things that, that Skip, you ought to talk to him about that I think a lot of people don't really kind of understand is this is a concert, an all-day concert music Mu venue. Music festival, yeah. Right, that allows you to drink and smoke. So, so it's not like, you, you know, I think a lot of people are really um, ha have been to like cigar events, like where there's a lot of cigar manufacturers and they kind of go around, they trick or treat, they put their bag out and they get their free stuff and there's some sales kind of going on and, and whatever. This this is really kind of focused on the quality bands. I mean, Scarface is coming um, from the Ghetto Boys and, and several other people that are that are playing. So the, so the music um portion of this is is not like what you would have at like your typical you know cigar fest or not and i can't even really say cigar festival because I think it's that's more it's right. more it's more like south by southwest or austin city limits on a small scale um i mean just to give you some idea at 300 attendees we're spending about 700 dollars a ticket hmm. so when, when you add in the food uh, we're getting Valentina's Tex-Mex and Style Switch Barbecue. Uh, we're getting Texas Sotol, which is kind of like a tequila-type thing, and also uh, Garrison's Bourbon. We're getting, we hope, 512 and Independence Brewing, which are two big Austin breweries. Um, 
So you're going to get at least, you know, two beers, a whiskey, a tequila, a Soltol, um, two meals. You get um, Superfonicos, Scarface, Third Root, um, and then you get uh, our DJ from Las Vegas who does, you know, $100,000 shows in Vegas. Uh, he's going to be here for all 12 hours. And then, um, you know, we, we do have a special release cigar. We have a, a cigar event at Habana House the Friday night before the event, which is going to be a really big event, you know, about a half a mile from here, uh, which is more of a kind of a classic cigar event. But, you know, we're spending about $700 a ticket, and the actual price of the ticket is, you know, less than $300. So you're getting, in terms of the value of what you're getting, at least what it cost us, you're getting, a, you know, just the, just the sound equipment for the bands in the stage is, is something like $50,000. The, the, we're, we're like a hundred thousand, I think into just paying the artist to play the, you know, a concert. Yeah. So, um, you know, the food and stuff is, is also high, you know, top. I mean, if you guys have ever been to our IPSPR party or anything we've ever done, we don't do it half-assed. So it yeah. really, it's more of a, it's more of a customer appreciation event than it is a cigar event. Right. You know, we're, we're having a lot of our retailers fly in. Um, you know, it's not going to be focused around us moving a bunch of cigars. We want to get the sales of the cigars out of the way early on. I mean, if we sell, you know, 1,500 boxes of Catadors at $100, we're going to recoup about three quarters of it. If we, with the ticket price, we recoup the other 25%. So between the ticket price and the cigar sales, we probably, it's about break even for us. Um, in terms of the two hundred, two hundred ten thousand dollars, uh, but you know, so it's not a money-making thing. It's really more of a customer appreciation event where we figured out how can we do a world-class thing without, you know, going broke. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, look, I mean, you know, if you come and you don't like it, and um, then we just want to invite you next year. <laughs> Are they frozen? That, I froze them on that one. Yeah, they, they're in awe. They're like, oh, <laughs> they're, in awe, they're like, that's a great party. <laughs> um, yeah, as of right now, Scarface will be a Weasel Fest. I think it looks like Mike asked if uh, Scarface is going to be there. Yeah. How, how does the host get frozen? I don't know. And they were making fun of your Nicaraguan internet. Exactly. Maybe, maybe, maybe the, the Chauvin verdict came in in Minneapolis and burned yeah. down the internet infrastructure. <laughs> So anyway, that's Weasel Fest. <laughs> it's a lot of work. I know that. Yeah. Yeah. So is um I wonder if somebody could respond if they can at least hear us and if it's just the uh the host that is frozen. No no one has said anything. So um <clears throat> Were there any other topics that you wanted to kind of get to before uh, they wrap this up? I want to get, I want to do the guess that number or the number de los muertos or whatever. Hmm. That's my favorite segment. Yeah. I can't see from the comments if people can still hear us. Sean can okay. hear us. Yeah. That dude gets all over, man. Yeah, he's eastbound like, and down. 
That's right. I don't know. This is usually where Mike Stefankovich has something to add. You know, I would I would also um, so the staccato thing I think is going to be um, it's going to be pretty amazing. Like I think that um, that's going to be that's going to blow a lot of people away. I think that um, you know obviously they're going to get to shoot some of their some of, some of the products that really, you don't really see, like, I think, um, you know, I think the tuxedo and some of the things that they've been kind of working on, like, I think that they want to bring some of those things out and kind of get some exposure to some of our guys. So that's going to be some really kind of, uh, you know, the ability to shoot some guns that you probably wouldn't get to shoot anywhere else, you know, so that's, that's going to be really cool. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about three, four, $5,000 handguns. Yeah. Um, and ammo and, and trained by some of the best guys right so yeah um so we'll we'll see so that that's a that's a that's a four-hour deal so i think that's uh i think we have it slated from i think one one to five and that will also be catered so we're going to have one of the uh one of the food vendors come out and and you probably just do some tacos something easy that they can do out there so He said they'll be back in a minute. So, so let's just talk amongst ourselves, Mike. Like the last couple of minutes, yeah. So, uh, what, what was your takeaway from the trip in Nicaragua? What were some of the things that? Uh, um, I mean, obviously you're back into Austin. So, what, what, what has when when you're leaving the factory and you know you're going to be gone for a few weeks? Um, like, what are some of the things as you kind of like, like how do you relinquish some of the like what goes to your mind when you're trying to shut down? Like, like, like how do you process that? Like, that's a good question. Well, so there's, there's like key projects that I had to, that I have to get done before I leave. So for the big ones for me this, that are coming up are the collective sovereign, which is going in the weasel pack. Um, that's, that's a cigar we did before, but it, we had to change the box and do a few other things. So um, there's that. And then we had to, to get the craft box off and going We've got the Grand Perfectos uh, coming out in the boxes. Uh, last year's Catador are going to be individual boxes this year. Uh, and then we have, uh, you know, so we have those kinds of projects. But, I mean, like, as you as you can see at the factory, really, for me, it's a, when I'm back in, in the factory, it's really about keeping the little things in between the lines, right? Right. And so um, when – so these guys are back. So when we so, – when I leave the factory, you know, having left before COVID, I hadn't left the factory for more than a month outside of a holiday in, in like seven years. So um, having been here for 10 months during COVID, you know, both Arlan and I learned a lot of uh, ways to do the jobs that we do from remotely. Right. Um, but of course, when, you know, we didn't work on any new projects. We didn't work on any uh, anything really limited. Um, we did we had all the tobacco already purchased. So there wasn't any, there wasn't a whole lot for me to do, uh, in those 10 months that were real critical things. Um, this time, you know, leaving to come here for weasel fest for six weeks, there's a lot of big things happening in the next month. So, you know, our last couple of days at the factory, you know, you, as you witnessed was really kind of full days of, of just checking all the boxes on the little projects with everybody. So how, how excited are you on the new craft box? I mean, that, that, uh, to be able to kind of draw it out, 
and put your you know master penmanship to a paper and <laughs> sketch sketch it out and then turn around and and kind of give it off to uh freddie and the team to come back within a day or two to get a sample like what what uh how cool is that well matt you guys you guys have seen the craft project over the years right it's always a really oh, yeah. so so just to give you an idea our, our average cigar um by the time you know, we prepare the tobacco to the time the cigar kind of goes into a box. It takes about four or five months from the time, you know, you start deveining and, and humidifying the wrapper to the time the box gets shipped to Austin. It takes about four or five months. Um, the buying of that tobacco sometimes is a year or two years before that. But with craft, just the what size it's going to be, how it's going to look, how we're going to elaborate it takes takes years. So, you know, we're already kind of have ideas for next year's Catador, next year's craft, the craft two years from now. And um, the box aspect of it, you know, always has to be a little bit more elaborate. And every year it seems like we, we get a little bit more and more elaborate with it um, because, you know, it's an expensive cigar. Um, you know, an average pair in the factory can make between three and 400 cigars a day. And then the people who are working on craft, it's always because of the way we produce it it's always ends up being that they can produce like a hundred to 200 a day. So um, it takes a lot longer. It takes, instead of taking, you know, uh, a couple of weeks to make enough cigars that are going to last us a couple of months. It takes us a, a couple of months for cigars, two or three months to make cigars that are going to last us one day. Right. So it, it takes a lot more kind of process to, to get that project out. Um, but I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it being over and then getting to work on next year's. Well, uh, sorry about the tech difficulties. Thank you guys for keep, keeping the show going while we were on a uh, temporary hiatus. That's, that's one of the benefits of this platform that we use is even, even if uh, my computer takes a dump, like it just did uh, the, the, the servers that host it still keep, uh, keep rolling. So I just kicked uh, over and interviewed. So it's, it's all good. You didn't, you know, Mike, you did great. Yeah. I, I listened to the whole thing. Thanks for uh, hanging in there, guys. Really no appreciate worries. it. Um, and uh, we had one question before we get to the fun stuff. And let's uh, mm. real quick talk about TPE and PCA. What uh, what does Romacraft have in store or not in store for trade shows? So that's Mike's area. I'll just say this to start with. Every year we sell the same amount of cigars for the last four or five years. Um, the, the challenge for us is we, we usually sell about 20% of our annual production at uh, IPSPR or PCA. Or we, but the challenge is sometimes it takes us till January till we can fulfill some of that. So where we always end up finding ourselves is spending $100,000, $150,000 to go to the trade show, which is great because we get to meet with a lot of our customers we don't normally see. And also, um, you know, we have the party, which is great, you know, just in terms of having it, some fellowship with other people in the industry. But the challenge is we always overbook ourselves with, with a trade show, especially when people expect discounts, which we don't normally do. So um, what we found last year from not having the trade show is that it doesn't really affect our bottom line. I mean, it doesn't affect our sales at all, but it does affect our profitability. We become a lot more profitable. So this year, instead of having a sales increase, we decided not to spend the money on the trade show. The, the flip side of that is we really made the decision based on the fact that 
the feedback from our customers is that they're not going. So if the retailers aren't going to be there, there's no really no reason for us to be there. So next year that might change. Um, either way, we're still members of PCA and we still contribute. And, um, you know, if they call us and say they need help with something, we're definitely willing to step up and do that. It just, it doesn't make sense for us from a capacity perspective, from a financial perspective, or from a customer relationship perspective to be there if there's, if our customers aren't going to be there. Yeah, I think, I think the, the kind of net conversations that I've had people across the United States is, you know, it's kind of mixed, right? So obviously the, the states like, you know, um, Arizona, Texas, Florida, Georgia have, have kind of been opened and remain open and, and, you know, and, and functioned really without really uh, missing a beat. And, and I'm sure those guys will go. Um, but then you, you look at California, Michigan, New York, um, some of these other states kind of in these other areas that have had a lot more restrictions, they're, they're just now kind of getting the ability to kind of open up, you know, 25, 50%, right? California, especially Michigan. Um, and so the, the, what ends up happening is, is that, yeah, they, they've been able to sell products, but are they really going to need to come in and, and stroke big orders to, to get a little bit of a discount? They, they may go just to, because they want to get out of their state and just kind of get something new. So there may be, the attendance may kind of normalize, but I don't necessarily think that, that people are going to necessarily, you know, go there to, uh, to buy deals or to load up on products. And so we can do a lot of that stuff virtually, right? And, and, and a lot of the times, you know, it's actually, you know, if you, if you looked at um, kind of the timing of, of the two trade shows, originally you had one in January, and then you had the other one kind of in the summertime. So it was kind of like one kind of acted like, you know, the TAA and the fact that, you know, people kind of got it in, in, in January and they could kind of take care of the ordering that they need to do, you know, kind of January for the, the first two quarters and then kind of, you know, reassess where they are kind of going in July, kind of finishing out the year. Well, when they kind of mushed them side by side, I mean, I think they're only like six weeks apart. You know, I don't. You know, now you got to you got to pick one or the other. There's no sense. In, you may get some people who go to both, but it it's really it, it's a timing kind of thing. And I don't necessarily know if there's really any advantage uh, from one or the other, right? Yeah. And now, if you have a head shop or or you're doing all kinds of other things other than than tobacco, uh, cigars, premium cigars, then you may go to one show over the other. I don't know, but um, but realistically, you know, I think for us is you know, hey, we're going to put this money into weasel fest and we're going to have retailers kind of coming into this we can hammer out and do a lot of the things that we need to do for account reviews you know i can sneak off and, and spend you know 20 30 minutes with each one of those kind of guys and say listen let's go ahead and bang this out and it's already off their plate and they're going to go focus on the other things and we got to spend some one-on-one -on -one time and kind of review you know on the, realistically we spend the majority of our time really giving a lot of our accounts where they are in their spends what's coming in you know, on a, on a bi-weekly kind of conversation based on the production stuff that's, that's being slated in. So there's really, you know, um, you know, historically the trade show was always kind of thought of, you know, instead of kind of spending a lot of money and flying into New York and going to New Jersey and, and Delaware and Pennsylvania, Philly, um, you know, those types of markets, you could have everybody kind of come to you and just kind of see everybody, you know, within three or four days at one trade show. So there was an advantage to saying, okay, you know, we could spend 150, 
you know, in four days and, and really bang out, you know, a lot of those kinds of conversations without having to travel to those areas where, um, again, with, with people kind of being more receptive to doing video calls and, and these types of things, you can, you can really, you know, do a lot of your business virtually and, and, and still have the same output and, and still not have to, you know, spend the money traveling. So, We'll, we'll kind of see how it goes. I mean, I think that's kind of the one thing about us is we're always willing to kind of, you know, look at, you know, you know, pros and cons of both and, and then, you know, um, and, and making a decision, right? I think, I think Skip said it the other day that if, you know, we get to a point where people saying, hey, we went to the trade show and you weren't there and we were looking forward to seeing you, you know, how, how does that, you know, does it really, but you kind of, you have to factor in all the, all the things. And really, I, I think this kind of this year will be a little, um, it's going to be a little interesting to see like what the turnout really looks like. So we'll yeah. see. Yeah. And, and you know, I'll, I'll say this and I don't think I'm, this is, you know, we, we beat this horse to death, but it's no secret that the trade show itself was challenged even before COVID. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. It was kind of, there was this, um, you know, identity crisis about whether they wanted to be an expo or a trade show, whether it was going to be open to consumers or not open to consumers. There was all this infighting, big guys leaving, people saying that they aren't going. Our decision has nothing to do with that. Our decision has 100% to do with just one simple thing, which is the reason why we spend the money to be at the trade show is to, as a service to our retailers and, our, and, and to benefit the relationship we have with our retailers. There will no doubt be a few retailers that go that are going to be disappointed that we're not there. There's definitely going to be other people in the industry that are disappointed that we aren't there to do our to to do our party that we do. Um, but overall, um, I felt like you know not having the PCA, not having the trade show last year gave us the opportunity to figure out a new way to fund the the really important activities of the PCA outside of the trade show, and to make the trade show to reinvent it. And I don't see that we've really done that. I, it feels like what I'm hearing a lot is we've gone away from the consumer idea. Uh, a lot of people feel like the mission of the PCA is over because we quote unquote won with the FDA. I don't think that's true. Um, I, I feel like a lot of people, for the reasons they didn't go before, they have even more reasons not to go now. The people who have big boots are going to go down to smaller boots. And, um, and, and, I, and my prediction is, and I hope this isn't the case, but my prediction is, is that the PCA won't find the kind of uh, revenue generation out of the trade show that they found in previous years. And the ROI is going to be even worse for the, for the exhibitors than it has been in previous years. And the value for the retailer is not going to be as good as it has been in previous years for even the ones who still come. So yeah. it's going to put us even further down the road of not even having a trade show than if we had taken the time during COVID to reinvent what it is. Yeah. So, so, you know, part of it is we kind of just really wanted to stay out of all that politics. If, you yeah. know, if the, if the PCA made from us 10, 12,000 of our 140,000 that we spent and, and Scott called me and said, hey, I really could use that $10,000 because we have this very specific thing that we're trying to do, uh, we would really strongly consider stepping up to do that. Even if they never sent a congratulatory email to Half Will, you know, you know so, uh, but but we would we would you know we would absolutely as a member of the community step up and do our part for that. Um, we I have never gotten one of those calls, so yeah, for sure. what it's worth. But 
I can tell you this, that, you know, all the people who go to the trade show, all the bloggers are going to have their criticisms or their positive things to say after. And I know for us, we're focused on the positive things they're going to say after Weasel Fest and, and about, you know, our virtual, uh, you know, we had a lot of great feedback from last year. We probably had our, we did more during our virtual trade show that we did here from the office than we did the year before at the trade show. Wow. So, yeah. so, uh, it's um, about return on investment. Yeah. And, and we've, we talked to Scott Pierce on the show, um, what a month ago. Yep. Uh, and, and we, we, we were very straightforward with him telling him that, that, we're not sure if we're going to go, you know, because, because of ROI, you know, as yeah. a small new media company covering the, in, the industry, if the ROI is not there, we, we don't have much ad revenue to, you know, be throwing around and that's, right. that's fine. We're a new company. We get that. That's the way it's, that's the way it is. But TPE basically makes it free for us to go. I mean, yeah, and and I think I've heard that the PCA is trying to do a little bit of that best practices from the TPE, but you know we'll see. You know, a you should guys should come to Weasel Fest. <laughs> That's at the end of May. Mm-hmm. Uh, believe me, you'll get you'll get value for the for the experience. And um, you know, whether you go to PCA or not, you know, I want to just say again, we really are big supporters of the mission of PCA. Yeah. Yes. Yep. And I'm a big supporter of the people at PCA, Aaron, Scott, Josh. I think they're all doing a very good job um, with, with little resources. And especially, you know, when they got furloughed and they still stuck in there and they're still hundred percent committed to to the mission. And and if it wasn't for the F, if it wasn't for the PCA, um, we would have been in a lot of trouble. I think from, from perspective of the FDA, just the work that we all did collectively over the last five or six years in terms of, uh, spreading the the differentiation message about premium cigars, I think, is paid dividends finally. Yeah. Um. And and a lot of the resources for that came from the trade show. But yeah. I think you know, um, it's almost a hundred years old, and there's not very many. Honestly, there's not there's not very many uh, trade shows, trade group shows that are going to survive the post COVID uh, period. I don't believe. Right. Um, I, I think I think that that era is over. Yeah. Well, I. So is it? I think I think it, it's time. Is it time? It's All right. Time. It is time for this week's Numero, Numero de, de los, los Muertos. Muertos. And as always, Numero de los Muertos is brought to us by our friends at Smoke In.
All right. Numero de los Muertos brought to you by Smoke In. Garrett, what do you have for us this week? Well, this week I've got a I've got a bigger number. All right. Than you normally get. So this week, uh, the number is 780 people a year die because of this in the U.S. All right. In the U.S., every year, 780 people die from this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. As always, viewers, if you guys have guesses, leave them in the comments. Uh, Mike and Skip, we're going to guess along here and try to uh, try to figure this out. Is it vaccine complications? <laughs> it is not. Uh, this is a uh, three-year average. Uh, I try to go with something that's in the news. Yeah, I get it. it. Is it mass shootings? It is not. Is it white people killed by police? <laughs> it is not. It is not. Okay, those were my three guesses. Those are edgy. So three-year average, 780 per year. Yep. So 2015 to 2018 was the most recent CDC number on this. Okay, so it's an illness. No. No. Oh, it's not an illness. Mm -hmm. Oh, because CDC tracks mortality. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I got you. All right. What was the number? It, what was it? What was the number again? Seven hundred and eighty. Yes. Seven hundred eighty. So we already did auto erotic asphyxiation. So I got that for you. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So it can't be that one. <laughs> Would they Is be it, considered workplace <laughs> accidents? Yes, they are. Ooh. All right. So it's some type of workplace accident. Ooh. Seven hundred eighty deaths. Is it is it uh, forklift injuries? It is not. That's a great guess. No oh. forklifts. Okay. Um, I'm not saying you're close. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I Does it involve know. some kind of equipment in the workplace? It can. Okay. Would the are they? Is it commonly indoors or outdoors? Yes. Both. Okay. Uh, is it cooking related? It is not. Okay. Hmm. Any, any, any guesses from the peanut gallery? Not Nothing. yet. No. Usually we've got people lined up. Usually it's me. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> true story. And the guess is always autoerotic asphyxi asphyxiation. Yeah, but I, had, I I shut that down now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That number's a lot higher than people thought. It's true. That was a high It number. was higher than I thought. Yeah. Um, um so <laughs> oh, um, this is a great guess from a viewer. Chris Brown hanging signs over trade show booths. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's still worth the money, even if that's true. Yeah. <laughs> even if it's that risky, it's still worth the money. Um, um, so the dudes that fall over the boats and the fishing, the fishing boat guys. Ooh, no. Oh, no. Okay. No, I did do that one though. Oh yeah. I mean, that, yeah. That's one of the top, the top 10 most dangerous jobs. It is. Yeah. Um, all right. Do we say our vehicles involved? They can be. They can be. 
All right. First hint is I'm going to give you uh, a region. So the biggest numbers come from Texas, Oklahoma, and Wyoming. Okay. Okay. Oh, so it's I maybe have a guess. oil and gas related. It is not. Oh, see, I was that's where I was going was was oil work. Animal husbandry. <laughs> You're getting real close. Oh no way, really? Yeah. Ooh, because because those are all cattle regions. Mm -hmm. Well, in Oklahoma, it's sheep, but um, it's not like exotic animals like Tiger King no, shit, no, is no, it? No. Okay, no. Ooh, because that's Florida. That's I like the way you think, though, Matt. Yeah, you, you got to <laughs> go for the crazies. Um, I'm, Tyler has got to have a good guess here. We haven't seen Tyler chime in in a little bit. Yeah. No. Um, probably, probably throwing bags. Yeah, he's throwing bags. Is is it related to livestock? Yes. Okay. Rodeo, dude. The the clowns from the rodeo. <laughs> Seven eighty. Yeah. That would be. That'd be a lot of rodeos. That'd be a lot of rodeo hey, clowns. Yeah. You never know. There's a lot of bulls out there. I don't know. It could be. That's uh, true. Well, the ones that are classically trained in France, like buckets. <laughs> Mark, uh, Mark says stampedes. Is it stampedes? Uh, it can be. It can be. So Skip kind of, I mean, he kind of said the term that I was looking for. But it wasn't an answer. Cattle? It's basically cattle farming. So whether you're, uh, you know, it's either a cattle hand or, um, you know, cattle farming in general between the equipment. Uh, let's see here. I got all of yeah, the little, little known fact for two years in high school, I worked on a, a ranch in Amarillo. Oh yeah. Oh, did you? And we did, uh, we did, you know, cutting, rounding up the new steers, cutting the nuts. Uh, we did uh, butchering. We did, uh, the whole deal reaching the glove into the, the cow vagina. Oh, we did the whole deal. Did you ever have any close calls with, you know, dangerous situations? Yeah, I think the the, the most people ever got hurt was kind of common was people getting stuck between uh, like the fence and, you know, where they're trying to get the cow into like a chute. Yep. And then getting behind the gate or whatever and getting kind of crushed by a. By that. Uh, so here are all the different um, kind of subcategories that have that have taken lives. Um, everything from feeding, moving animals to different pens, uh, loading animals on truck or trailer, right? Artificial insemination, <laughs> um, uh, hoof care, dehorning, um, cleaning animals, roping. Um, let's see here, giving vaccinations. Castrating, uh, castrating, pulling teeth, yeah. ear tagging, milking, branding, shoeing, which is hoof care, um, uh, delivery of newborns, um, yep, that's that's uh, kind of the the nuts and bolts of the subcategory. That's crazy, isn't that nuts? Seven hundred and eighty a year. That's a lot. 
and mainly just in those three states. Yeah. Wow. How many police officers are killed a year? In the United States? Yeah, I figured somebody would have that metric with all the news. Yeah. yeah really, I'm sure somebody does. Yeah. I, I bet know. it's I bet it's lower than 780. Oh, 100. Yeah, it's got to be it's got to be way lower than that. Way lower. Yeah. And there's probably a lot more police than there are cowboys. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go on on a limb and say yeah. yes. That's a yeah. dying art. But it, I mean on a positive note, a cow's not going to shoot you on a there traffic stop. There you go. Yep. That is correct. So that was a good one. Thank you. That was good. That was good. Good guess, Skip. I, I was I'm good. I'm giving Skip the win on that one. That was yeah. a that was a good Animal one. husbandry was was <laughs> that would have given me the the family feud, the you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The ding. Yeah, it would have been close enough. Absolutely. So that was this week's numero, numero de, de los muertos. All right, let's move into the the quick lightning rounds. Um, so, Skip, the last time we had you on, we did um, uh, we we had the original lightning round questions, but we have some new ones uh, that we're going to go through. Um, but I'm going to start with Mike on this one. Uh, so, Mike, if you could bring back any fashion trend from the past, what would it be? Mm. The Cavaritis. <laughs> Z Cavarici. With the pockets with the pockets in the front. You know, those, yeah. those uh I was too poor back in the day. I couldn't afford them. So yeah, you same, know. same yeah. here. I had the I had the, the Kmart brand like absolutely our Cavabucci's or whatever they were called. <laughs> from the chess king. Yeah, from the chess king. <laughs> Air mall. Air mall with my with my knockoff. I couldn't even afford British Knights, so I had the knockoff mm -hmm. BK. <laughs> uh, Skip, what about you? If you could bring back a fashion trend, I'm gonna say low rise jeans for women with flat abdomens. Because mm, the, the the high rise jean thing, I I just don't get it. Which is coming back? I, or, well, it's back. Yeah. We down here, you see a lot of girls rocking the bell bottoms. Yeah. Oh wow! That's but the high the high rise jeans don't really do any favors for the fupa. I agree. <laughs> I got, I have to agree. It's it's like a mom jean revolution. Right. <laughs> it really is. Um. All right, Skip. You're going to be first on this one. Who was your? Did Did you have a a a favorite when you were a a kid or a teenager? Did you have a favorite celebrity crush? Oh yeah, man. We all had the uh, poster of uh, Farrah Fawcett. <laughs> And oh, yeah. uh, and uh, then later it kind of got replaced by Heather Thomas from the Fall Guy. From the Fall Guy, I had that poster. The Heather yeah. Thomas, poster. Heather, Heather. yeah, yeah, but it, it, yeah, that was probably my celebrity crush. But my all-time favorite celebrity crush is Jennifer Conley. Oh my gosh, dude! You're you're preaching to the choir for yeah. this guy here. Oh, <laughs> that's my. That's she my. You uh, might be number one on my list of all time. I think she's on my number one list. And even at fifty years old, she's absolutely stunning. Smoking hot. Yeah. Elizabeth Shue is my number one all time. You know, Cruel Summer. Oh. Uh, the, the Karate Kid. But yep. you know, but you know when uh, her role in the in the boys. Yeah. Kind of kind of ruined that one for me. I get that. Yeah, I could see that. But I the Saint. That. 
she was yeah, yeah great in the same. Mike, what about you? What uh, when you were a teenager, what celebrity were you crushing on? Crush, um, probably Tiffany Amber Thiessen uh, from Saved by the Bell. So, nine hundred two one zero, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Just so you yep. know, Mike, Mike is only four years younger than me, and we went from <laughs> we went from Farrah Fawcett to Saved by the Bell. Dude, that back that was that was. That was she was the hottest thing going around. I mean, we went from 1977 to 1997 in just like that. Yeah, we did. Right, right. <laughs> um, that was that was the first. I mean, that's something I really think of right now. So yeah, no, I'm going great, with that. That's a great choice. No shame in that. At all. all right, so Mike, if you could add any person's face to Mount Rushmore, it could be any anybody at all. They don't have to be a president or founding father or whatever. Anybody's face to Mount Rushmore, who would it be? And you can't say Skip Martin. No, it would be. It, it would. It would have to be. We were talking about this the other day. We were in. Uh, we were Geronimo, right? Like I think oh, Geronimo. Yeah. Love it. Would have, yeah. Yeah. Nice. What about you, Skip? I would have to stay with the theme of the presidents, and I would say Eisenhower. <clears throat> oh, okay. Very nice. Tricky Dick. No. Uh, no. I, Ike. 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 I like Ike. Yeah. I like Ike. Yeah, that's a very good choice. War hero, president. I dig it. He was brilliant too. All right, let's uh let's talk about this week's notable smokable and as always, notable smokable is brought to us by our friends at Ace Prime. Ace Prime, notable cigars, notable passion, notable purpose. So, uh Skip, you've been through this before, but Mike, each week we just discuss one cigar that we've smoked recently that was interesting to us. It could be something that's been on the market forever that we just revisited for the first time in many years, or it could be something brand new that we just tried. Um, so Mike, do you have anything that you tried recently that uh, kind of caught your interest? Um, there was some stuff that I smoked down in Nicaragua that was pretty interesting, but it's not, not really released. Um, something that, that um, I would probably say something that I always kind of, tend to go back to we have some kind of in, in the closet back there that I picked up somewhere along the way but there's some old Camacho uh liberties or something that are back there the um the, like the original release the like diploma Super, the diploma those are oh, yeah. yeah I always enjoy those I always like to revisit those still strong yeah those yeah. those were really good really good really strong even um yeah, I mean, those have been... Those are about 15 years old, the ones we have. Nice. Very nice. So, uh, Skip, what did you have for Notable this week that you can that you can think of? Um, Raul gave uh, a cigar that he blended to Sean that I smoked <laughs> before <laughs> that I took from Sean and smoked. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know if it's something he's working on for Saka or if it's something he's working on for himself. But it was really, really good. Yeah. You know, the thing is, is that the, him and Esteban have very similar kind of trends of the way they work with tobacco. And um, so, you know, whenever Raul works on something, uh, it's always good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, it's it's got to be fun to get a chance to try some of those uh, just quick, you know, maybe one-off sort of blends that, that uh, the guys in the factory put together. Yeah, and Luciano gave me some gave us something at the Intercontinental too, right before I think it was on Cigar Dojo last week in um 
right after he got off, uh, he had a cigar that he had blended with uh, Ernie Carrillo hmm. um, while Ernie was in Esteli, and it was it was him and Ernie had blended it, and uh, it was it was only a couple days old, but it was really good. You know, while I was while I was down in the factory, um, I got a hold of the Guaymaro Petite Corona, a little box press that that uh, the, the know, Rothschild, the Rothschild. Yeah. Holy shit, that dude! People sleep on that cigar. That cigar is so good. That I don't. Cigar. I, you know, if you like, if you know, if you like the flavor, but don't necessarily like the depth of HN, I think that's like, it's like right in that wheelhouse. Like if you like everything about HN, but you just, you know, it's just too kind of bold and and too much for you. The Guamaro is like right there. I mean, that's a cigar. I can smoke that every day, all day, just like I smoke Octane's Apologies. Like that's yeah. That's such a good cigar. Yeah. Yeah, so Garrett, what was your notable this week? My notable was the uh, Alma Fuerte uh, Lancero. Oh, yeah. Placencia. Yeah. I had recommended that to a friend, and I watched his face melt. And <laughs> then I, I had thought, I haven't had that in a while. And damn it, that's a good cigar. Yeah, you know, that's one that I don't get a ton of strength from, but I really do no, like the, yeah. the flavor profile on it. It is not, it, it's not strong, but a lot of great flavors yeah. in that cigar. Yeah, so, that's one of the, that's one of those cigars when you're smoking, you don't really think too much of it when you light it up and then you'll be halfway through and go, man, what am I smoking? This is good. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 So mine, I, I revisited one that uh, I fell in love with years ago, and that's the the Joel Sher Joel Sherman seventy fifth celebration uh, from from you know the old uh, Nat Sherman brand, uh, and really super mild cigar, but a lot just there, there's just a lot there, even though it's mild, it's 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 enjoyable to smoke the whole way through. And was it was that made by Manolo? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. kind of a characteristic of those that era of Casada cigars, where you know they just have good, medium, great taste in tobacco. Yep. Yeah, and it was it's just a, a blend I enjoy a lot. So I was I was grateful to find some of those because they're they're pretty much gone. Um, so to give our viewers and listeners an idea of some stuff we have coming up soon, uh, next week on the twenty sixth, uh, we're going to talk to Cynthia Fuente. Uh, and then on May 3rd, uh, we have uh, a very different guest, um, uh, and his name is Jason Ledane, and he is actually a um, he, he's he's a, a card expert. He's a he's a he's a magician and a card expert, but he's also a cigar guy, and um, kind of a different uh, a different type of guest that we're going to have on the show. But I, I think it'll be interesting for us to have a little bit of fun with, uh, you know, some conversations outside of the cigar world, but also, you know, talk about his experience as a, as a cigar smoker and what he enjoys as well. Um, then we will be at TPE covering the show uh, live on uh, from May 12th through the 14th. And then uh, following that, the following Weasel Fest. Uh, oh, then, then, then uh, we, we hope, to be at Weasel Fest, yeah. um, and then uh, and then uh, May seventeenth, uh, Indiana Ortez will be on the show. Who is newly announced as the the new director of operations at uh, Mombacho Cigars, and yeah, that's that's great news. Yeah, you know, we, we were we were initially the distributors for Mombacho in yeah. the U.S. Yeah, and then and then also uh, I've known Indiana now for five or six years, and uh, it's great to see her kind of moving into that, and also Jesse. 
Yeah, yeah, and Jesse Flores is now the the uh, the art director and and uh, director of design for the company, and they're they're definitely making big moves right now, and it's exciting to to see what that company's doing. And uh, Indiana's got such a great her family's got such a great history in, in premium tobacco, so excited to hear that story. So, um, uh, guys, give us a, give us a final plug for uh, uh, dates on Weasel Fest and and where they can uh, where they can find the portal. So we will release that uh, over the next two weeks. Uh, we'll release to the option one and option two and option three people ne- this week. And then um, next week, the portal should be available to, um, to uh, I think it's uh, weaselfest.cigarweasel.com is the portal address. Uh, it's on. It'll be on the poster that we post on social media. Um, but we'll make sure. Th- I think it's actually a link on our Instagram, our Romacraft Instagram right now. Okay. It's just not active for people yet. Um, and I know there were some questions about uh, whether people could transfer their tickets or not. Have you made a decision on that? Yeah. Uh, like I said before, what will happen is, like, let's say you have a ticket. So you have a confirmation number from last year. You'll get an email saying, here's your confirmation number. If if you have a buddy that wants to go, you'll be able to give him the coupon code or your confirmation number, and he can register like normal, and it'll just discount in the checkout. Great. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Mike and Skip, thank you guys so much for being on the show tonight. We appreciate uh, hearing about your recent uh, time in Nicaragua and Weasel Fest and all the great stuff coming up soon for Roma Craft. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. All right. For all the viewers and listeners, uh, as always, thank you guys so much for watching and listening. Uh, Take just a minute, if you would, and make sure to subscribe to all the channels on Facebook, on YouTube. And uh, email us on the website if you guys have questions for us. Follow us on social media at HBT Cigar. And as always, until we see you next time, burn cigars, not bridges. See you guys. Thanks. Thanks.